0: If you're hearing a faint humming in the background, it's because this room is haunted.
1: We're starting to think it's not just the room. This entire podcast is haunted. Hopefully, you can still appreciate this podcast. We recorded the whole thing, listened back to it. Something very scary and strange happened. There were weird noises. We don't have any explanation Mm -hmm. why, so the audio is going to sound a little bit off. We tried to do the best we could without having to re-record the whole thing and
0: lose that magic. The magic's there this time because we're talking about dead bodies, which we love.
1: Yeah, so this is the second of our Creepy Christmas Haunted Hanukkah episodes that have been ruined in the recording. We don't know what it is. We're sorry, Satan. We're sorry to all the victims of Richard Ramirez. We're very sorry. Enjoy. Enjoy. Oh, Daniel, thank you so much for giving me this job. I'm so excited to be the new bellboy at the Cecil Hotel. Yeah, well, you followed me to work. What was I supposed to do? Okay, big surprise. I work on Skid Row. Let's all laugh at Daniel. Isn't it funny? No, no, no. I've heard so many cool stories
0: about this place.
1: Oh, yeah, like the time I flushed my employee ID down the toilet and I tried to plunge it out, but my glasses flew in the urinal and then I reached out to get them and my pants fell down just as my boss walked in and saw the tattoo on my butt that says this job stinks and I couldn't see, so I I thought it was my mom, so I kept asking her what I'm getting for my birthday? Is that the story you heard? No. I heard this place is full of junkies and prostitutes. It's not full. There's plenty of rooms.
0: But hey, but is it true that no one is allowed on the 13th
1: floor? What you heard is true.
0: They're shampooing the carpets. I read somewhere that a lot of killers stayed here on the top floors. What if, and hear me out, what if I'm up there surrounded by murders, and I have no way out? Well,
1: there's always my way out. But it's a staff exit, and you're still on probation. Oh well, isn't there anything here that's scary? Well, there is the contact room. What's a contact room? Come on, I'll show you.
0: Why do I feel like this?
1: You're feeling the... Creation of darkness.
0: I don't want to be here.
1: None have has
0: no. I wanna believe this is too much. Okay.
1: Whew! Nothing beats a quick dip in the contact room. <laughs> <laughs> That's you! Don't forget to wait for a tip! Because Saiten expects his cuts. <laughs> Da, na-na-na-na, na-na-na,
0: na-na-na-na,
1: that's the <laughs> jingle bells Copyright <laughs> <laughs> we, and we're, The
0: lawyers are outside the door right now <laughs> We didn't say rock That's the jingle bell roll In case jingle bell roll is also a song It's R-O-L-E Jingle bell R-O-F-L R-O-L-F <laughs> Whatever You almost got it <laughs> You
1: almost got it Hey I have emojis on my phone <laughs> Finally after years of no emojis <laughs> I
0: just downloaded emoji Colon close parentheses. <laughs> Alright friend You're not trying to frown at me are you <laughs> I'd hate for you to frown I'd like you to turn it upside down. <laughs> Hi. Uh,
1: welcome to episode 24. That's two dozen. Two dozen. It's a devil's dozen of episodes. <laughs> this is our third annual Creepy Christmas Haunted Hanukkah episode. The holiday season is upon us. Yes. Gather your family around mm-hmm. the Yule log. Get a load of this. Get a load make of this. Make sure
0: your youngest relatives are here for this one. Get the fireplace going, nice and warm. Gather around. And, and make a corpse on the fire. Make sure that there's enough evidence burning in your little fire. <laughs> and, you know, just board up the windows. Lock the door. Make sure no one is creeping up outside. Check your hit list. Check it twice. (laughs) This one's going to be a little bit different. Our last two creepy Christmas Hanukkahs were about ghost stories that we both... Gathered. Sort of. Yeah, this one's a little more concentrated on one particular place in the city—the epicenter of hell. Yeah, it's uh Greg's house. Not the epicenter. <laughs> it's like you know how there's a Goodwill, and then there's like separate Goodwill donation shops. <laughs> My house is like a donation, donation center for hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is where we you take come... all kinds. <laughs> you can't come here and get an experience of hell, but you can drop <laughs> stuff off. That you're like, this would be good in hell. Give me, you're tired. You're damned. <laughs>
1: you're, <laughs> you're weary, looking for a soul to steal. This one is going to be all about the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles.
0: Perhaps you've heard of it or like some other people. I hope you haven't. Perhaps other, like. For decency's sake, I (laughs) hope you haven't. Maybe like some people we know who walk by and like, this place is nice. I'm going to walk right (laughs) in. Let's have a banquet here.
1: (laughs) Before we do get into this episode, this is the first time I think we should have what some people call a trigger warning. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I call a disclaimer. Yes. Greg calls a
0: wuss out plan. Oh, I need to know if it's going to be scary before i I just take it. Yeah, this is a very graphic
1: yeah. episode, so don't let your children listen to this. Mm-hmm. But hey kids, once your parents go to you bed. You
0: listen to all that. Just dirt quick, stuff you won't. Yeah, quick replay on their vinyl. And
1: <laughs> just listen to this one.
0: Yeah, I was reading my research for this. I'm like, I can't say that on the I'm not this podcast. It's so whimsical. Death is whimsical. <laughs> if you go out like these people did, it's certainly whimsical. <laughs> and that's what the problem with our podcast is. People are dying and we're like, ha, what? Dancing on the graves like a bunch of grave dancers. Merry Christmas. You yeah, know, whatever. Just be prepared. Don't come crying to us. I didn't kill anybody. Yeah,
1: we didn't do it. Yeah. You know what? Just because so, some people say maybe we did, prove it. <laughs>
0: The jury's still out. We, we burned didn't do all it. the evidence.
1: <laughs> Innocent until proven guilty.
0: <laughs> We're not even wanted in California. You can't get me on anything. <laughs> the crimes I've committed have been in other states, in other countries. <laughs> is a murder even a murder in Idaho? <laughs> it's a missing persons until they uh, find what I've yeah. hid. <laughs> yeah.
1: With that, grab your eggnog, put some mistletoe over your heads, because here be... comes a kiss from <laughs> daddy. <laughs> 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 Better spike that eggnog because it's going to be a rough ride. <laughs> Better spike that mistletoe <laughs> because this kiss is going to hurt. <laughs> kiss from the spider woman. <laughs> (laughs) is straight up an
0: assault with my lips (laughs) if lips could kill
1: let's begin please let's scare each other i'm very eager to scare you with this and i'm already scared just looking at you you walked in here you had hate in your eyes (laughs) there's blood in my mouth yeah (laughs) is a building born evil or does it become so interesting given the chance would you go back in time and kill baby cecil hotel I know when I it's would. on the John. His little baby potty. <laughs> here I am. It's gonna be like the end or beginning of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> this place has, as far as I'm aware, the worst reputation in the entire city. Yeah, it wasn't always that way. Well, it kind of (laughs) was. To understand the Cecil, you have to understand Skid Row first. Skid Row is considered to stretch from Maine to Alameda between 3rd and 7th, covering about 50 blocks. Mm. Back in the early days, most of this land was vineyards, most likely of vines related to the vine that was brought over from Spain to the Mission San Gabriel. And they were haunted. Listen to that one. Yeah, the haunted grapes. (laughs) Seasonal workers would come to town to work these vineyards, so short-term housing, like hotels and boarding houses, started to pop up, and along with that came restaurants, and along with that came saloons and brothels and other places the lonely male workers could indulge in their non-vineyard interests which what else is there space space god's vineyard <laughs> every star is a grape and we're just swimming in the wine man oh i'm sauced i got a snootful full right now interstellar hooch <laughs> <laughs> then okay. in 1888 Southern Pacific's arcade station opened up near 4th and Alameda so people arriving into town would arrive there and go to the cheap housing that was nearby yeah. then the depression hit which I it always I, I wake up in the middle of the night saying that phrase because we say <laughs> it so much on this and people kept coming to LA showing up at this station looking for work and that didn't always exist so a lot of people ended up on the streets around this area then in the 1950s Skid Row had arisen with just a bunch of liquor stores, pawn shops, and god-awful flop houses. (laughs) Then in the 60s, a lot of cheap hotels didn't meet safety standards, so they were shut down and even more people got dumped out onto the street, and it was just a cycle that kept dumping on itself more and more (laughs) until it is what it is today, although now it's starting to change. Gentrification. So, with such an environment to be brought up in, can you really blame the Cecil for what it became?
0: Little baby Cecil. Little baby Cecil. Cecil was born. It's got little rat fleas all over it. Because there are a lot of rats. Not enough, in my opinion. Oh, here the big debate starts again. We
1: don't have enough rats in this city. <laughs> I want more rats. I did not have sexual relations with that rat queen.
0: It right. was seven rats at once. It was like a.
1: They told me they were all single. He said they were cool with it. On December eighteenth, nineteen twenty-four, the day Star Wars came out, oh boy, the Cecil Hotel opened up at six forty South Main Street. It was designed by Loy L. Smith and constructed by the Wymouth Crowell Company and financed by W.W. W. w. Payton and Associates. Look, I'm giving you information like who constructed it. I give you that sort of thing all the time because you may not care, but maybe you'll spot a connection to something else we've talked about that we didn't notice and you can let us know. But in the case of the Cecil in particular, there are so many weird coincidences as the people who work there may call it (laughs) that are coming up. I'm just giving you all the clues. And if you connect the dots in a way we can't, more power to you. Great. Let us know, though, because we're curious. Yeah, oh, my God. I'm so please. I, I need to know. Yeah. <laughs> so, the Cecil Hotel is born. Okay. <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> <laughs> it, he grew up real quick. <laughs> its name could come from the old hotel of the same name in Alexandria, Egypt, oh. but more likely from the Hotel Cecil that was in London in the late 1800s. It was built at the height limit of the time of 92 feet high, 145 feet wide, and boasted 700 rooms. That number has since been down. To 600. They thought 666 rooms was were... <laughs> too obvious. Just lock them up. They're closets, they're not rooms. All the rooms were furnished with locally manufactured furniture made by the Roberts Cohen Company of Huntington Park with a contract from the Barker Brothers the guys that made Bonopoly (laughs) this meant over 4,000 pieces of furniture that had to be delivered by more than 100 trucks to the Cecil the newspaper article of the day said that it was all good furniture or else it would not be used in the furnishings of a hotel of the high class that the Cecil will be Mm
0: Predictions are funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Originally, it was a sort of high-class place intended for visiting businessmen, but that didn't last long because the businessmen stopped coming there as nicer places started popping up that weren't on Skid Row. It took even less time for the weird stuff to start happening. Oh boy. In 1927, a guest named... You drink some of that eggnog. Hold your loved one close. In 1927, a guest named John Croner... Stole a diamond hairpin from the Roslyn Hotel and was chased by police and arrested in his room at the Cecil. Oh boy! Mm, you know that's fine. Yeah, it's a we've crime, all though. been there. Yeah, I mean, diamonds. I mean, come on, I'm diamond hungry. <laughs> a diamond, are mine and Greg's best friend <laughs> and our only best friend. Don't come to me with none of that gold. <laughs> it's diamonds or nuts Dim- That's why they call us Diamond Finger. How about you put a diamond on this finger already? (laughs) Then, in April 1929, a 33-year-old lady named Dorothy Robertson was wandering outside the hotel for three days before someone finally reported it and she was taken to a hospital. Turns out her husband had just died and she tried to kill herself with prescription drugs, but she failed or did she? (laughs) She did. (laughs) None of this is too scary just yet. Just a little strange. The Cecil was just spreading its wings. (laughs) It was testing the water. Is the city going to put up with me? Oh yeah. (laughs) They let that slide, really?
0: (laughs) They didn't shut me down yet?
1: And keep in mind that the Cecil is next door to the Pacific Electric Building. So while all the stuff in the You're Killing Me Larry episode was going on, so was all of this right next door. So just keep that in mind. Let that taint that episode for you. All the Southern Pacific guys are at Cole's. like, what's that sound? Murder? I can't hear you over my horseradish dip on my... Like I said, the depression hit Skid Row pretty hard, and the Cecil took it right in the face. It became more and more of a flop house than a businessman kind of place, and more and more the clientele became transients and people coming there to have affairs or prostitutes using it as their hub. But as rooms were being used for just a few hours, many were also becoming long-term housing. And that bumped things up a notch. In 1931, a 46-year-old man from Manhattan Beach named W.K. Norton went missing from his home. His body was found in a room at the Cecil with a stomach full of poison capsules. Oh, boy. 1932, the yearly offering. 25-year-old man shot himself in one of the rooms. Wow. Dead. In 1933, a truck driver got crushed to death against the outside wall oh of the God. lobby of the Cecil by, get this, a different truck, not his own truck. 1934, a 53-year-old sergeant in the Army Medical Corps named Louis D. Borden cut his own throat and died in his room. At the Cecil That is a lot of suicides Don't even Oh boy Also in 1934 A 19 year old Named Robert P. Kegg Was arrested at the Cecil After having robbed Two other hotels On Main Street He was planning to rob A liquor store as well When they caught him How did they know He was planning to rob A liquor store Had a note in his pocket That said You are covered Open that cash register And shell out No tricks or else Okay Sign the Cecil some other notable events there in the 30s An old man who was living there tried to shoot himself In Westlake aka MacArthur Park right. An old woman who had been living there was found Not living washed up from the ocean On the beach Okay. A guest named George Ford was caught in a sting At the Astor Hotel with $10,000 Worth of opium that he had been selling That's a lot of opium nah. Nah, how do you It's like want two opium? pods Come on here Have a puff of this. this. Tell me how you feel. Take a skin off. Euphoric and sleepy. A lady named Dorothy January was staying there and put out some sort of ad in the paper for a childcare position. And a guy came to her room at the Cecil to answer and ended up accepting the job of choking her and stealing $40 from her purse.
0: Wow, 40 bucks. Yeah, that's like, that's a lot of opium. (laughs) From the guy across the hall. (laughs) (laughs) What am I going to give George?
1: (laughs) One time a guy in the hotel almost died drinking from a bottle of poison liquor that had killed three others, although I'm not sure if those three died in the hotel or not. One guy who was living there got killed in a gunfight with his childhood best friend who happened to be the bartender at the nearby Waldorf Cellar. Wow. In 1939, there were no Alcoholics Anonymous groups in LA, so a woman started one up to try to help her alcoholic husband. Most of the people who were in this group ended up relapsing, but the next year, a guy named Mort came to town. He put a feather in his beer bottle (laughs) and he called it Alcoholics Anonymous. He got the names of all the people from the meeting the previous year and tried to get it going again he chose as the venue for their meetings a room at the Cecil Hotel in oh, March 1940. Nice. There were about 10 men in the first meeting, but the group kept going, and eventually a member of this group named Sybil became the first woman in AA to get sober in the West. Yeah. So the Cecil hosted LA's first regular AA meetings. Hey, look at that. That's not bad. Now let's talk about the jumpers. Please. So many people have jumped off this building that many of the long-term residents refer to it as the suicide. The first reported incident is from 1937, when 25 year year old Grace E. Magro jumped off the ninth floor, ripped down telephone wires as she fell and died in the hospital. Her boyfriend was asleep in the room at the time and had no explanation as to why she would jump. Next up, 1938, a marine fireman named Roy Thompson spent a few weeks in the Cecil and checked out through the window and ended up dead on the skylight of the building next door. (laughs) Wow. Here we go again. On October 22nd, 1954, a 55 year old named Helen C. Gurney who had been living there a week in room 704, jumped out of the window and landed on the marquee. She had checked in under the fake name Margaret Brown.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: On February 11, 1962, 50-year-old Julia Francis Moore jumped out of the 8th floor and landed in a light well on the 2nd <sighs> floor. Oh God. Then one month later, 27-year-old Pauline Auten was staying there while separated from her husband Dewey. On October 12th, she went to his work to try to reconcile, but he came over later in the day to talk things over. He stepped out for dinner, and when he did, she stepped out for dinner out of the 9th floor window window and landed on 65 year old George Gianini who just happened to be walking by it was a transient At first police thought they had jumped out the window together because they were just so like Yeah they, were, they, they looked were like n- one in a person not yeah, yeah. <laughs> but his hands were still in his pockets and his shoes were still on apparently a fall from that height it'll knock your socks off <laughs> You should try it. (laughs) This isn't just a habit from the past, though. This past June of 2015, a 28-year-old man jumped out of a window at the Cecil and landed on the pavement out front. They claimed he was not a guest, but simply trespassed inside for the purpose of killing himself. In case I didn't clarify, all the people who jumped are now dead. In 1995, a murderer named Eric Reed escaped from jail in Castaic and was found in the Cecil. In 2010, this one's weird, a day before he was set to receive the award for Paramedic of the Year, Charles Anthony McDougal. MacDougall responded to a call at the Cecil. He went up to examine somebody while his partner waited downstairs. Eight minutes passed and his partner went up to check on McDougall, only to find him lying on the ground, stabbed and bleeding. There was no sign of any attacker and no suspect was ever found. Oh my god. There's still no explanation of this, but it seems the way, the things I read it kind of felt like it had something to do with like a prostitute or a mistress or something. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Uh, it was me. There have there, I like to stab paramedics. There, uh, who's going to help them? That's what's funny about it. Performance art people. There have been reports in the hotel of hearing loud televisions being played when the TV volumes were not loud at all. In January 2014, there was that picture that looked like somebody jumping out of a fourth floor yeah. window. The guy who took it said he had nightmares after taking it. Both ghost hunters and ghost adventurers have been there. There are just the everyday constant calls of domestic and narcotic abuse at the hotel. Just regular skid row sort of thing it is believed to be the hotel that inspired the Raymond Chandler short story Nevada Gas Nevada Gascar That's his kid's short
0: story. It's only giraffes, though, and it's kind of boring. The
1: gamblers like to move it, move it. (laughs) In 2007, the hotel was bought by a group of buyers for $28.5 million with the intention of converting it all into a tourist hotel and renaming it The Pearl because the world is your oyster and oysters are a good way to shake off bad reputations. However, there is a city ordinance that says if you get rid of long-term housing, you have to provide replacement homes for the people that you're displacing. So the new owners decide to get around that by suing the city over getting their designation as a long-term housing establishment changed. Then a group of long-term residents who had been living there for 10, 20, or 30 years sued the new owners for trying to drive them out of the Jeez. building. Then, part of the group of the owners sued the leader of the owners for misleading them about the building having this designation when they bought it. While all this was happening, the hotel started to get remodeled, and the tourist hotel portion of it opened up as the Stay on Main, which now occupies floors four through six, okay. and is heavily marketed toward European travelers who don't know any better. They <laughs> They renovated the lobby really nice to lure people in, but the rooms are still horrible, apparently. During some of the renovations, roaches started flooding Ooh. out of the walls. Oh, no. Discouraged by all the lawsuits and the roadblocks, in 2010 the new plan was to turn the Cecil entirely into low-income housing, with 384 rooms for people just off of the street, 75 affordable apartments, and 75 market-rate apartments, but the street is trying to gentrify so this plan was shot down by 2014. People pointing out that there's already over 3,000 units of low-income housing in the area yeah. and was going against what the area is trying so hard to do, which is essentially push out the poor and the
0: homeless. Especially that spot right yeah. there. Like uh, Maine the, and yeah. 6th and 7th. Like, yeah, yeah those, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It
1: worries a lot of the people that have been living in the Cecil for decades yeah. because they're they're... I mean they're just not as sexy as European Backpackers (laughs) the way things were settled Is that now the Cecil is classified As a residential hotel with about 300 residential units and 138 stay on main rooms Mm -hmm. However after the Lisa Lam Incident which we'll get to they really started Pushing the place as the stay on main Rather than the Cecil understandably so They even changed the marquee outside In this sense the Cecil is a Perfect encapsulation of where downtown Is right now like half trying To be a great wonder of gentrification and half the scariest place on Earth. (laughs) Ever since it was revealed that the Cecil is the inspiration for the current season of American Horror Story, Hotel, tons of people have actually been wanting to stay there, willingly. The true American Horror Story is that the Cecil really isn't the only of its breed in the area. Places like the Alexandria and the Roslyn, Mm -hmm. they've been catering to similar crowds for a really long time as well so who knows what horrors have been going on there for now though let's go a little deeper into the Cecil's four most infamous guests Greg wow many people talk about
0: this person you know we've had our own killers in the area serial killers if you will but there's one that really stands out amongst the crowd because the way he killed and how he did it sort of symbolizes Los Angeles in a weird way and that killer is the night soccer, Richard Ramirez thank you and it's you. Um, <laughs> for this, I ended up reading Richard Carlos' The Night Stalker Life and Crimes of Richard Ramirez. I'm going to read this thing I read about downtown LA. He passed broken down hookers with no teeth and black eyes and tattooed junkies who were rail thin and lost in a haze of heroin. He passed coke heads whose eyes were bugging out of their faces, their movements erratic, their mouth working away aimlessly foaming. There were bars that smelled like stale whiskey and dirty bodies. I've been there. Laced with the sweet aroma of marijuana filled with a distinct drone and hum of human misery and hustle. Richard walked through this jungle of degradation with quick and easy step. If any place was ever a bad influence on a boy, it was downtown Los Angeles. And this is pretty much the downtown LA of the 80s. It was so bad. It was so, so bad. Especially Skid Row. One of his old haunts that I, when I read it, I'm like, oh, of course, mm-hmm. because this place always scares me. It's the Greyhound bus terminal on 7th Street. Have you ever passed by that? It's like,
1: I have never seen that. I feel like all of downtown is a Greyhound bus terminal. <laughs> <laughs> so in that sense, yeah, I've been there and I rode the bus. I've only ever passed by, but it
0: just seems always so sketchy and dark. Well, of course it is. It's a Greyhound it, bus it's terminal. It's a Greyhound bus terminal. I remember because i you know i went to school outside downtown los angeles they're just show off grand was like basically the only street you wanted to be on like i remember spring being really bad i never went on main i never had a reason to go on main now that everything you should stay on main gentrified stay on main stay on (laughs) main Hey. It's a warning. Hey hey. hey, hey, come on, stay on me. Stay on me. Please stay, stay main. on me. <laughs> but like between 7th
1: and 8th, like that one coffee shop, just stay there.
0: And during the day, please God, during the day. <laughs> By the time Richard Ramirez arrived to Los Angeles from El Paso in 78, a fresh 18 years old, he was already set on path of brutality. Whether he was to become the night stalker or just an anonymous criminal, whatever he chose to do as an outlet for all his trauma was going to be like extreme. Like it was going to be like uh, like a t- like set to 10. With many serial killers, people always ask whether their actions are a product of nature or nurture. Was it his genes or his? Environment to blame it's easy to look at things like El Paso being the site where the atomic testing so you could oh maybe it's something in the air it's easy to think of stuff like his mom when she was pregnant with Richard worked at a job where she was breathing in chemical fumes and she <laughs> was feeling nauseated all the time and she like had these dizzy spells they thought that she was gonna lose the baby so they started giving her injections so she can keep it God and all this weird chemical stuff it could be that he had seizures when he was a kid because he has, he was epileptic he like grew out of it but you know grew out of that th- 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 yeah he had um petite mall seizures which would just be like he would just stare at something for like 10 minutes without saying anything. And then he had like epileptic fits in like class. It meant that he couldn't play football and he had, he was like a really energetic if Only he had been able to play football. He could have, hey, listen. He could have been OJ. <laughs> he could have been the guy who did the dog fighting.
1: <laughs> I was trying to b- Vix VapoRub <laughs> or Michael Vicks VapoRub.
0: <laughs> v- Don't rub it on. You'll get angry. Don't rub it in. <laughs> he was later, like much, much later after like he was caught, was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy, which has symptoms like he was hypersexual. He had mm. hyper-religious feelings. Hi- hypergraphic imagination He was overly aggressive People who have Temporal lobe epilepsy Were like Van Gogh Julius Caesar Napoleon had this um, He's in great company <laughs> Because of his Epileptic fits He like lost a lot Of opportunities A lot of people Like the football thing Was something his sister Brought up Because it was like He a, a sister He's like, f- he one of five kids Three brothers A sister and him He's the youngest Of the five But that's all Nature genetic stuff That could be Other than those Somewhat genetic maladies Richard Ramirez Was inadvertently raised To become the Night Stalker <laughs> Let's look at his mo first let's talk about what we know the night soccer as night soccer prowled the greater los angeles area in the late hours of the night driving stolen cars to seemingly random houses he'd park in ways that made getaways easy he would sneak into homes with great ease like it was so easy for him to do this many to this day blame the brutal summer of 1985 which at the time was the hottest summer on record 1985 i think we brought that up in uh, something. something they blame that summer for all the open windows Dude, ah, a lot of people still talk okay. about that we had, everyone had a windows open everyone had the screen doors locked but just an
1: air conditioner What's wrong with you people?
0: What? With things
1: expensive in the 80s? Was there some sort of recession in the 80s? They spent all the money from... They were still trying to recover from disco. <laughs> you know how much money we had to spend on disco? They spent too much money on geometric shapes. There was, <laughs> <laughs> there was no no left in the budget for air conditioners. You know how
0: expensive all that neon stuff was? What? And we had to have neon. <laughs> all the chemicals were in the neon signs. <laughs> Everyone was getting sick. Yeah, so there's all these open windows. But from my readings, he, like, didn't just pop into any windows. Like, he still had to take screen doors off. If breaking into homes was an Olympic sport. richard ramirez would be on like a Wheaties box he <laughs> and kept, like oj <laughs> like just like oj he handled window screens like there were nothing he could slip into like really tall windows and like throw his six foot body into it nobody nobody would hear anything like he was completely silent he was a prowler before anything else he was a prowler he picked locks like there were nothing he reached into doggy doors and unlocked mm. uh, the doors he climbed trees he climbed walls all of this without like i said making a sound many times before entering home he asked satan to watch his actions because this was going to be an offering to him because oh, no. he was a Satan worshiper. Once when he was in a home, he'd like stand completely still for a minute and let his eyes adjust to the dark. Oh, God. So can you just imagine a guy just standing in your kitchen yeah. just waiting until he could and see you everything? And you'd just see like, the
1: faint glow. Oh, if you see yeah. Them,
0: just a, like, what is that? <laughs> yeah, what's that? What's that shimmering? Oh, it's a knife. <laughs> he used a pin light to get around, which is... Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I use that sometimes. When I'm on the prowl He mostly operated with a 22 pistol Sometimes he used a 25 later in this whole thing He, he stuck would around. shoot people? He'd do all kinds of stuff We'll get into it <laughs> If he saw a woman and a man He'd usually put the gun to a spot around the ear and fire The 22 bullet scrambles the brain like it goes Like there's no chance of survival Like some people can get shot in the brain and they live Wait, why, why only if it's a man and a woman? There was something that he was interested in the women That he was not interested in the men for their compassion and understanding just tips on painting nails The women were rarely let off that lucky. The night soccer was a vicious rapist and sodomizer and he would bind women up, punch them, rape them multiple times throughout his stay in someone's home, burglarize and ransack their home, eat their food, drink their (laughs) soda. If the women were older, chew their gum. If the women were older, he'd usually kill them afterwards. If they were younger and attractive, he'd let them live, often attempting to be tender with them. I don't know why he did that. I was reading it. Like if someone was attractive, he didn't like Why? no interest. Her. one woman says in the night stalker after a raping abuser told her that she wasn't bad for an older woman she thanked God. him out of compulsive politeness just like After attacking one woman, he asked for directions back to the 5 Freeway. He was in Burbank and he thought it was in Glendale. (laughs) If you did what he said and didn't fight and gave him the sexual dominance and pain, he saw he let you live. That seemed to be the biggest draw to that. If you resisted, he either shot you or stabbed you. One woman managed to pull a shotgun on him when he was ransacking her home. She pulled the trigger and there was no bullets inside, so he shot her. He Uh. stabbed her fiercely in the chest and then he cut her eyes out. Okay. Okay. He took them back to the Cecil towel with him as his bounty. The eyes? The eyes. Oh, Brown no. Brown eyes he took back to the Cecil with oh, him. Oh, God. Some people claim that many saw him just dumping his bloody clothes in a dumpster at the end of the evening and going back to the back entrance. The Cecil. He was so comfortable at the Cecil. There's uh, a back entrance. There's a back. Oh, uh, no. God, that back entrance has Hellspawn some doors. Hellspawn <laughs> can spew out from two sides of it <laughs> and the windows. <laughs> he was so comfortable at the Cecil that dumping evidence was just like taking out kitchen trash. Like, okay. Wh- hey, Richard. <laughs> Another one? Eh, what can I say? Hey, Saturday, isn't it? <laughs> Hell Satan. Hey, hail Satan. <laughs> Alright, you crazy. <laughs> crazy kids. I'll never understand you. In many of these cases he raped and killed elderly or invalid women, sometimes after they were dead. Yeah. He stole VCRs, jewelry, cash, anything of value, and he would take him, this blood stained stuff to a house in Echo Park and trade it for drug money. I really? think
1: I know whose house that is. <laughs> it's very close. I'm really? like,
0: I know that street name. I'm like, oh. oh God, um. That's where I get my blood money. <laughs> <laughs> the need for drug money fueled this. What fueled him and kept him going was heavy metal music. <laughs> at one crime scene early on he left his acdc hat oh, when he was god. eventually caught and a to oh, questioning god. he was apparently humming the song night prowler by acdc huh. the fact that anyone considers acdc heavy metals just he also let his victims know that he was a big worshiper of satan when people would beg him to believe that they didn't have anything more worth stealing and they would say like i swear to god he'd like no swear to satan oh, no. uh Tweeb. Uh, yeah, yeah he saw batman too soon him praying to satan before he entered the house was kind of like you're yeah, a Tweeb. yeah he drew pentagrams on the walls with lipstick and in one case he drew it on a dying woman's thigh. Everything he did was dressed completely in black. He had rotten teeth, his skin smelled like leather, and he the, apparently the eyes of a rabid animal.
1: I guess all of our skin smells like leather in a sense. Yeah, but you know, I wash. I don't think he you
0: washed. You're not supposed to wash the leather. Oh, uh, no, Greg, like your face skin. just fell off. <laughs> <laughs> now to bring up the idea of nature versus nurture again. Despite there being natural problems with Richard Ramirez, he was otherwise a good kid. The youngest of five, two hardworking parents. His father was distant. He had a bad temper, but they were like religious, somewhat over-religious. So he must be great. Yeah, you're right. God is great. <laughs> Satan is great. Father, Satan is great. His father was a disciplinarian, but overall, he just wanted his boys and one what daughter. church is that? Church of Discipline which is all of them and you would know that if you ever went but no I got something to do on Sunday hey, I've got c-
1: Super Bowls to watch it's the big Super Bowl the hockey's playing the hockey <laughs> hockey's
0: playing baseball day <laughs> it's Super Bowl Sunday <laughs> <laughs> every Sunday <laughs> I've got the Super Bowl on my lap right now back to the, back to the night stalker Richard Ramirez's dad just wanted his kids to go to college and be good at academics. None of them were. Richard was shy and tried to be good at school but he just, as he went on further along, he just found it harder and harder. He was restless. He had a really big imagination. Something of a loner when he played. He played cowboys and Indians and played both roles. Uh, (laughs) He played cowboys and Indians and he was the cactus. (laughs) (laughs) When are you guys going to involve me? Life in El Paso was really hard and having four older brothers who were wild was having their effect on Richard. He smoked pot for the first time when he was 10 years old and he wasn't afraid of drugs or stealing. All this being said, Richard Ramirez was designed mind to be the night stalker. Every little thing that led to his success as a serial killer was in each small part thanks to the revolving door of trauma that he had to deal with. There were so many bad influences in his life and he witnessed so many horrific things and was schooled in so many forms of crime that it was only inevitable that he became the dreaded night stalker. None of this is an excuse of course and none of it makes it okay but reading the laundry list of things is hurtful when you think it's just happening to a child so you're kind of like oh that makes that fits this fits this fits. First two of his older brothers were molested as kids by a school teacher who would often come around the house and pick the boys up. Sometimes this guy would even enter the home. On the topic of whether Richard was ever a victim, the brothers could only say that Richard was around at the same time his teacher was around and when they asked Richard Ramirez, he couldn't recall anything. He was too young to recall anything. But his brothers are like, well... Another pedophile in town raped a small boy, and Richard was present when they witnessed it. He fled before he could become a victim. His father had an insane temper and would lash out at the boys, and as he got older, instead of staying at home and living in fear, he would run off to the cemetery to sleep. It was peaceful there. What? The abuse the boys took made most of them move out at an early age. Many of them dabbled in crime, robbing homes to support their drug habits, and after all the court cases, their father had to sell the family home after he spent most of his savings. Enter Richard's cousin Mike. to fill a a void left by the absence of the cousins. When I, you know, I I used to read about serial killers because I used to think that I was interested but really I'm more interested in detectives catching them. (laughs) When I read about Richard Ramirez, they always bring up Cousin Mike. Cousin Mike is a psycho and the worst possible thing to happen to Richard, Cousin Mike, Miguel, was a decorated war hero who fought valiantly in Vietnam on paper. When Richard was hanging around Mike, Mike would tell him about his days in Vietnam and the brutality in which he operated. See, the Viet Cong believed that they couldn't ascend to heaven if they were missing limbs so American soldiers would Uh. often cut their limbs off there are stories of soldiers wearing necklaces with oh, hanging Viet Cong ears mike would show richard pictures of his exploits as well in one photo mike has a gun to a woman's head and he's forcing her to perform fellatio on him Great. and in the next photo he's holding her severed head okay decorated war hero that was an every american soldier hey, those are our troops <laughs> That isn't every American soldier. But I've heard enough of this sort of thing from different wars. And I'm like, yeah, this happens. Mike taught Richard. It outside of war too. Yeah. Actually, yeah. it happened to Cecil. <laughs> Mike taught Richard almost everything he knew about moving stealthily, about where to attack someone on their body, about hunting. Richard's dad took him hunting too, and they enjoyed the sport of it. But Mike took him. He showed him how to take pleasure in killing. Mm-hmm. One night, Richard was hanging around Mike's place. And Mike's wife came home, and she complained about him not having a job and being a deadbeat, and they argued. And Mike shot his wife in the it- chest. Right in front of Richie. Mike told Richie to never tell anyone. He's like horrible Forrest Gump. (laughs) Trauma Forrest Gump. He taught Charles Manson how to stab by accident. (laughs) So Mike told Richie to never tell anyone what he saw, and he didn't, and told him to run. Mike was arrested, but only did four years in a mental hospital, because all he had to say was, Oh, I have PTSD. He never saw a that made up thing. <laughs> we don't believe that. We don't believe that's made up. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let, me let me apologize let me, for the me apology. Yeah, yeah. So at this point, Richard was getting into hallucinogenic drugs and began to love the idea of bondage and sex mixing together. He liked the idea of dominance. Regular sex wasn't really doing anything for him. He would visit Tijuana with his brothers and they would get prostitutes together. At an early age, his brothers taught him how to break into homes, how to scope a house out, when to break in, what areas were ideal. Later, his sister married what can only be described as a peeping Tom. He taught Richard how to cruise and stalk for women. To Peeping Tom. He, t- <laughs> <laughs> he taught Richard how to sneak up on women's windows and get the most out of a peep. Uh, when Ramirez was 15, he got a job at the Holiday Inn. He somehow acquired a master's key from another employee, and oh boy, he started by just robbing rooms and getting away with it. He was—he knew rhythm. He knew not to just do it a bunch of times, do it, wait a long time, do it again. He would also, uh, do it at the Holiday Inn job, would look into windows and watch women undress. One night, it became too much to bear, and while a woman was in the shower, he used the master key to let himself in. When she came out of the shower, he attacked her and attempted to rape her. But luckily, very, very luckily, her husband came back in the room and beat him to a pulp. His head was swollen large on his stupid, lanky body. He told his mom and sister that the woman had invited him in for sex and the husband had caught them. So he pretty much got away with it. The couple were from out of state and they didn't want to hang around Texas just to go to court with this thing.
1: An out of stater doesn't win in Texas court. It's
0: Texas. Did you bring your gun? (laughs) Remember the Alamo. (laughs) (laughs) This. But crime and madness continued. Being brought up religious was a big deal to his family, Rich was very spiritual. But all these like rotten and natural ideas were in his head and never felt like a good person. Because he wasn't. <laughs> And he started to naturally gravitate towards believing that Satan supported his decisions. What was probably crippling depression and trauma was definitely seeming like a Satan department matter to him at the time. <coughs> Send that to Satan. <laughs> oh. Care of. Care of Satan. One of his brothers moved out to Watson, Richard would come and visit him throughout the years. He loved Ally. In particular, he loved how old... It, the, the Randy Newman songs about him. <laughs> written from his perspective.
1: His little number <laughs> written from Richard Ramirez. My old friend. <laughs> you got a friend in me.
0: He in particular, how openly sexual things were here. Hmm. Uh, not only were there girls in bikinis. I guess
1: the, yes, beach, the, the was, Capitol Records building's pretty phallic. It's
0: so phallic. He just licked his lips and said, let me sit. It <laughs> looks like a nice seat. He wasn't only turned on, like, there was, of course, like, Beach Boys song girls at the beach, which was not a Texas thing. There was also late 70s downtown Los Angeles, which was definitely an inviting place for a young man with a formula of serial killers stewing <laughs> in his brain. There were prostitutes and drugs and porn shops and porno theaters all over downtown. It was just so obvious. All of it was on display. No shrouds of secrets it was like he was in the hell that he thought he belonged in so in 78 at the age of 18 he moved out here and immediately was hooked on cocaine which was his style at that time and instead of snorting it the ramirez's which were him and his brother and whoever else was around would mainline it into their veins which causes a much quicker high makes the user frantic and wild then he gradually graduated to angel dust and pcp
1: congratulations he finally graduated
0: (laughs) Here's your diploma, it's
1: a needle His dad must have been so proud (laughs) Dad, I did it Dad, I graduated
0: (laughs) Good No follow-up questions.
1: (laughs) Good. We're never speaking again. (laughs) Bye.
0: He quickly learned the layout of the freeway systems, how sprawl worked. He wanted to rob houses in every community that we had here. What a Uh, goal. Yeah, he certainly tried. The first person he raped here was a lesbian woman he shared Mm -hmm. drugs with. He kept making passes at her, and she wouldn't allow him to advance. And about 3 a.m., they ran out of drugs, and she told him to leave. He left the room and then went out the fire escape (laughs) and waited for her to fall asleep and snuck through the window from the fire escape and attacked her. Now, was
1: that his first, I don't want to say success? Rape but was like was that the first one that because he said the other one he got he, stopped yeah. was I think, this I think this
0: was his first case of raping somebody okay from this you can see with that one I think that he is taking this years of guidance from the bad influences and all the bad experiences he's tried to do and starting to shape his methods like, he's starting to, okay, I'll sneak out. And like, he's starting to get how you can see him building as the Night Stalker. Mm. That same week, he discovered the Satanic Bible and, of course, loved it. <laughs> so much so that he journeyed to San Francisco to meet Anton LaVey, the oh, founder of the Church of Satan. Great. He was quite impressed with Ramirez, of course. He was quoted as saying, I thought... Richard- <laughs>
1: Emperor Palpatine was impressed with <laughs> Anakin? What
0: a surprise. <laughs> what a surprise. They quoted LaVey saying, I thought Richard was very nice, very shy, and I liked him. He would say about future serial killers, Richard Ramirez.
1: <laughs> he's got something, that kid. <laughs>
0: he's got a Sparkle in his eye might be the drugs. (laughs) While he was there, he had the opportunity to witness a ceremony where everyone was naked. Uh, A rumor said he felt the touch of Satan's hand. I hope that it was trying to strengthen. Yeah, Satan. Some people just call it an erection, psycho. What's
1: that?
0: He Okay,
1: what's that? Okay, exactly. Tammy. Like,
0: I don't know. What's that? A secret? It sounds funny. What is that? <laughs> is that like a pants secret? <laughs> he returned to LA, completely changed, and the frenzy continued. He was no longer interested, like I said, in conventional forms of sex. Everything now was fueled by his anger and his bloodlust. His sadistic nature needed an outlet. He continued robbing houses, taking drugs, paying for sex with prostitutes. He attempted to kidnap women and rape them, failed many times at this. Good. He would steal cars and sleep in them. When he scored money, he would stay at many of the downtown's sleaziest motels, places like the Huntington. The Roslyn, sign still up, places still up. The Ford, the Frontier, and of course, the Cecil. Naturally. Nice to meet you. He reportedly stayed on the top floor. These places were no questions asked, no ID necessary, transients rooms. They went from like $8 a night to $14 a night. It's a good Spot deal. is <laughs> still like that? A lot of times after he's having his killing spree, what he would do is steal a car, kill someone, abandon the car, take the bus back to the Greyhound, buy drugs, and then go back. Or sometimes he'd take the stolen items straight to Echo Park, then to the Greyhound bus terminal, and then just spend money on drugs. He was a regular at the Greyhound terminal. He was also a regular at the Cameo Theater back in the 80s. Oh, that's why you were asking about it the other day. Because it used to show hardcore pornography, which also pleases Satan. (laughs) So between 78 to 84, he becomes superb. Prowling, but robbing houses is no longer doing it for him. Satan demands more. I heard a story, a personal story from this era of night stalkerism from like a family friend, actually. This
1: story haunts my
0: days and my nights. Somebody I know who is equally into true crime was telling me that when she was younger well, when her and her sisters were younger, she had moved out by this time. I think they were staying in Monabalo, I want to say, in like an apartment complex. And somebody snuck through the window and tried to kidnap her little sister and pull her through the bathroom window, and everyone chased him off. He ran and jumped over a fence and left a shoe behind. And they went to the cops later and they did the lineup of suspects. And they pointed to a guy who was Richard Ramirez, (laughs) but they didn't have enough to pin on him. So they had to let him go.
1: Hmm. Did they still have the shoe? Yeah,
0: they kept it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They bronzed it.
0: (laughs) It's strange because like, you know, LA, even yesterday, I was on my porch. And all I was talking about was how hot the summer was. And someone was like, you know,
1: (laughs) not as hot as that
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not as hot as 85, but you know what that makes me think of? (laughs) The night because it was so hot but you had to close your windows because there was a killer sneaking through all the windows this past
1: summer was really hot yeah. but nothing i wonder if anything's gonna emerge like he's
0: back yeah, that's <laughs> fine. let's talk about the spree i try to do this as delicately as possible please um, don't please go nasty in the summer of 1984 this is one that starts in the glass Owl park area of los Angeles, which is near eagle Rock and cypress park ramirez finds the first victim of what would become the night soccer spree. I don't want to get into every gruesome detail or whatever. Oh. Out of respect of victims, I'll only get into details into the weird ones that later lead to him getting caught. June 24th, he kills Jeannie V. Cow, was 79 years old, in glass Park.
1: 79? Yeah,
0: jeez. March 17th, 1985. This one's a weird one. It doesn't really follow his the pattern. What happens is he's driving on the freeway and he sees an attractive woman, so he follows her home. She enters through the garage and he sneaks up completely unnoticed. This is where he drops his ACDC hat. Now, <laughs> instead of stabbing her and trying to rape her, he charges into the garage she turns around and just as he's going to shoot her the garage door closes and the lights go out so he fires and she holds the keys right to her face and he she hit the whoa the bullet ricochets off the keys she falls to the ground pretending to be dead he goes right over her into the house her roommate dale okazaki this woman's name is maria hernandez he walks right over miss hernandez walks into the kitchen and she her roommate dale okazaki is there behind the kitchen counter she just heard a gunshot she looks up night soccer's there and he shoots and kills her robs the house walks back over by this time maria hernandez is left the garage. She's like trying to get away and he comes out. She's hiding behind trash can and he sees her and he mm. walks and he doesn't do anything. He walks away. Can't figure out why.
1: Maybe he thought that it was a miracle that she blocked the thing. Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe, maybe there's that, a, there was a chance for redemption in him. <laughs> God does exist. So after this. I thought you were going to say that the like garage door f- like fell on him like the rancor. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end, right? End of the story. <laughs> then, like, the
0: fact I came out started crying. <laughs> oh,
1: cousin Mike.
0: <laughs> he does the same thing to another car but this woman notices that she's being followed so she pulls up. How
1: do you notice you're being followed? Like she's I, I sometimes following. I sometimes think yeah. like am I being followed? But uh, how do you
0: know like it could I, I have no idea but this woman figured it out hmm. She just noticed that since the freeway in the exit and probably this in turns she's being followed So she pulls over at a red light. M-
1: my better question How do you keep yourself being detected from following somebody? What you
0: have to do is just <laughs> get low behind the steering
1: Make them think a dog is driving the car. <laughs>
0: Following me, I'm okay with that. <laughs> you know, she turns around like, "What are you doing? What's up?" And he walks up to the car and he's like, "Well, I thought I recognized you." And she's like, "No, you don't recognize." So he tried to <laughs> pull her out of the car, and she tried to get away. He shot her in the street, and there was witnesses to this. Really? Yeah. So that's it's beginning to start building because he left a witness already, and then there's other people. Who's, yeah. That was a weird one, but he shot and killed her. So there's two victims in different areas. One was in Monterey Park, the other one was in Rosemead. Ten days later, in Whittier, he violently attacked and mutilated Vincent and Maxine Zazara, which is, this is the woman who cut her eyes out. He <sighs> was in the 60s; she was in her 40s. A couple months later, May 14th, in Monterey Park, he kills Bill and Lillian Doy, who were both in their 60s. On May 30th, 1985, he attacks Carol Kyle, 41, in Burbank. On June 1st, 1985, this is a really bad one. I'll let you look it up. He attacks 83-year-old Mabel Bell and her sister Florence Nettie Lang in Monrovia. This is where he leaves Pentagrams. July 2nd, 1985, he attacks Mary Lou Cannon, who is 75.
1: Mary Lou Cannon? That sounds really familiar.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, Mary Louise Cannon. Oh, never mind. This is a weird one. July fifth, the day after Fourth of July, nineteen
1: eighty-five. Wait a minute. July fifth is after the Fourth of July. Yeah, yeah. Didn't what? you? I thought you you'd start your calendar. The eighties.
0: <laughs> What's like next? I say, after disco, the world was in disarray, <laughs> and they're just trying to get back into the swing of things.
1: That's why the swing revival happened in the nineties. <laughs>
0: They took it too literally. (laughs) We're trying to still recover from that. I mean, everyone's still combing their hair. Everyone's still saying, yeah, dog. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, that's swing. What I meant to say was cool cat, but I got my animals fixed up. (laughs) Hot dog. Hot dog. (laughs) He goes to Sierra Madre, right? And there's a house he basically walks through the door. Now he sees... (laughs) Like the thing? (laughs) Like the thing. Basically, yeah, it walks through the door. Everyone is sleeping. There's a young girl who's 16 years old. Her name's Whitney Bennett. What he usually does is dispatch the entire household and then goes to the one that he wants to have sex with and have sex with them. This is a little different he comes in the house scopes everybody out goes back to his car and gets a tire iron because he's gonna beat this girl to a pulp and then have sex with her and then she's gonna kill everybody room by room but he goes to the girl first and she's sleeping he takes a tire and he hits her in the head then he tries to strangle her with the cord to a phone which he's done before he like electrocutes people he has the phone cord around her neck but he says something weird starts happening where like there's blue sparks coming out and he sees like a blue haze coming and he thinks it's god trying to intervene, <laughs> so he just stops huh. and walks away and he's so like frazzled by this so he walks away the girl has no recollection of that happening and she just wakes up and her face is like what? the pulp and her, her eyes are like being shut and she can't figure it out. Uh, Why couldn't much. he have epilepsy when he was older? <laughs> <Or> imagine. <laughs> yeah, there's a guy here the you know, yeah. and he's just shaking. Okay, and then on July 7th 1985, he attacks Joyce Lucille Nelson who's 61 in Monterey Park and then later that same night, hours later, he attacks Sophie Dickman who's 63 in the same area. 13 days later, on the 20th, he attacks Max and Leia Nielding in Glendale in their 60s. Later that same night, he goes to Sun Valley and attacks the Covanath family. He kills the husband and attacks the wife. Around the end of the July, he attacks a couple on Northridge on Acre Street. No. Which is right what off- street? Acre Street, which is right off of Parthenia, I think by Skateland. Oh, no, not Skateland. But the couple manages to fight him off. Oh, Florida. see?
1: The proud residents of Northridge.
0: He came out to this area because it was so far away from the east side, which he'd been attacking primarily, uh, that he wanted, like, to, yeah, he wanted to scare everybody up.
1: He wanted to eat at Brent's. He kept hearing about it. Their corned beef.
0: <laughs> which he he was muttering the entire time the corn beef uh, Satan corn beef beef. <laughs> <laughs> so he tries to attack Virginia and Chris Peterson in Northridge were sleeping in their home but she is a light sleeper so she heard him cock the gun and she woke up and she's like what are you doing here and he shot her right under the right eye but it only rocked her it didn't kill her it she, rocked her yeah it knocked her against the wall and she asked was this a joke then
1: wait a minute she got shot under the eye and said what is this a joke I'll explain this okay so her
0: husband Chris charged at him and Ramirez shot him in the right temple, knocking him back. Uh, well, everyone in Northridge is immortal, I know that. Or <laughs> <laughs> Mike Piazza <Dressa> was born. <laughs> but not killing him. What? So he lunged at him, and then two men grappled, and Ramirez left to the cart, first to get more bullets, and then he figured the cops were coming, so he bailed. The explanation for this? old ammunition. The gunpowder had lost its potency and it couldn't penetrate the skull. Mm. Virginia's shot went through the roof of her mouth, down her throat, and out the back of her <laughs> neck, missing her brain entirely. And
1: she still said... And she was in a lot of pain. Yeah, but she was like, what is this
0: joke? Like, what are you what are you trying to do, kid? The bullets are small, so it hits a point that's not going to harm anything. I'm sure, like, the adrenaline and the shock.
1: Yeah, I guess you would, wouldn't cry until it was so over. Left. Yeah.
0: His final killing in our area happens on August 8th. The Abawaths in Diamond Bar. After this, the heat was really on him. There were too many witnesses left alive, and now there was an eighty-thousand-dollar reward on him. So? He people around the Greyhound terminal wouldn't hesitate to turn him in, <laughs> but he was wrong. They did hesitate, but then they did it anyways. That was one of the three things that ended up giving up his identity to police was one of the people at the Greyhound Terminal. All he's leaving at the scene of the crime, really, that they can really put on him is a shoe print, a size 11 or 11 and a half, a Via brand shoe print. It's always underneath a window. In some cases, it's a bloody and on a blanket or on the carpet. In one case, it's on someone's face. That's how they know him. He has big feet and he's wearing these Via shoes. They tracked it down. Why
1: are you looking at my feet?
0: Where were you last night?
1: Diamond Bar. Uh
0: huh. What time?
1: All hours.
0: <laughs> I live there and everywhere else that people are in the So they have the shoe prints. They have the shell casing, which is a twenty-two. Sometimes it's a twenty-five. They have descriptions because he leaves people alive. They all describe him: rabbit eyes, bad teeth. What they have on him is teeth
1: I, wanna, and feet. I want. I uh, want.
0: That's what they got on.
1: Ooh, your you're night turning night. me on. Teeth and feet. <laughs> I'm a teeth and feet kind of guy. Double E kind of guy. <laughs> I wanted to see how gross his teeth really are.
0: i you. you want to see a picture right now? No. Let me show you a picture.
1: Okay. Okay. Greg's just smiling at me. That's what
0: <laughs> Winking. <laughs> eh?
1: I haven't flossed in 20 years. Oh! Yeah. Oh my God. Don't worry, I'll put this He's up. got Klaus Kinski teeth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's Klaus Kinski! You can only uh, be alliterative names to be nice <laughs> So that's his teeth. And that's his teeth, folks. <laughs> so after the Aboath thing, the heat's on, so he steals a car and hits to San Francisco until the heat dies down. When he's there, he kills a random old woman in Chinatown, and he ends up staying in the Tenderloin District. Oh no. Which is just quite scummy. On August 17th, while he's in Merced, he kills an a man named Peter Pan <laughs> and attacks his wife Barbara. Not
1: Barbara Pan. Ba ba ba. Ba Barbara Pan? Her, the man who killed Peter Pan. wow mm-hmm. Well, I, he does look like Hook. He does look like Hook, you're right. He's afraid
0: of ticking clocks. <laughs> the ticking clock, which is the police. After that attack and robbery, he left a pentagram on the wall. San Francisco Police Department, they put out a press conference, and without the go-ahead from <laughs> LAPD or LASD, which is the Sheriff's Department, they released detailed information about the attacks at both Northern and Southern California, which the task force was pissed about. And sure enough, Ramirez dumps his size 11 avias and his gun over the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, to no. the Ocean. Now, the ocean's the killer.
1: <laughs> the bay did it. And
0: then he heads west to Arizona to see his brother. With increasing awareness of the Night Stalker, the entire Los Angeles area was gripped with terror. The sale of guns, window bars, guard dogs, and artists went up. If you were a locksmith <laughs> during this reign of terror, 1985, Business is good? gold rush.
1: <laughs> the second California gold rush. <laughs> he restarted the economy in the 80s. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Richard Ramirez. <laughs> <laughs> His goal, and yes, he had a goal, was to steal enough money to be able to buy a house and use it as a torture house. Oh, Similar God. to H.H. Holmes. I know. Wait, is H.H.
1: H. Holmes the guy that, Wolf in the White City or whatever it is? Yeah,
0: Devil in the White City. Devil yeah, in the yeah, White City. H. Holmes, the guy who attacked people during the World's Fair. That's what he wanted to do. Yeah,
1: in reading my stuff also, the guy I'm about to talk to, they kept bringing it up like, kind of like H.H. H. Holmes. And I was like, oh, I don't want to hear about him. He
0: did kind of set the bar pretty high. Yeah. yeah.
1: The diamond bar.
0: <laughs> this is really creep me out. He wanted to videotape his conquest and sell him because there's apparently a big market for that. God damn it,
1: Skid Row. But
0: that would have really defeated what his true calling was, though, prowling. (laughs) Except in one instance, early summer of 1985, when he tried to break into a home of a deputy sheriff, not knowing it. He tried popping open a small window, but the window had been painted over, so he had to break the seal. So when he did, the deputy's wife woke up and asked if her husband knew what the noise was. So Ramirez fled, but not before leaving his signature clue, that one big of VSU print.
1: Why just one? Is he one-footed? Is that like, have you been burying the (laughs) The lead this whole time? He's He's also kind of like that worm from Richard Scarry's world. (laughs) Why is no one asking
0: the real question? Where's this other guy's foot? When is the other shoe going (laughs) to (laughs) drop? He didn't buy it. It was both feet. All right. It was both feet. Thank you. Shoe prints. But luckily, the deputy sheriff... It was
1: one foot because Satan was carrying him all along. (laughs) I'm your single wheelchair. I'm your
0: rollerblade.
1: Go to (laughs) Skateland. I'm scared because around this... No, I wasn't around then, but I was in Skateland like a decade later. I don't think I had
0: any interest in
1: you. I'm really young. I was... (laughs) My neck's really tight.
0: The deputy sheriff noticed what happened. He contacted the guys who were... I'll get to the guys who were in charge of the task force. He contacted them and said, I think I got it. Ramirez's hero, other than Satan and whoever the singer for ACDC was, was Jack the Ripper. Uh, Oh, no.
1: Didn't he sing for ACDC?
0: Yeah, Jack the Ripper. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) He's
1: the one in the little boy shorts. (laughs) That's
0: why he dressed like a (laughs) schoolboy. This was not planned, I'm sure, but Jack the Ripper's last killing, the most brutal of them, happened because while most of the killings... In Diamond Bar. In Diamond Bar. He made it out here. Good for him. While most of Jack the Ripper's killings (laughs) happened out in the street, his last last murder, the murder of Mary Jean Kelly, happened within her own home, so the Ripper took his time with the privacy of her home to mutilate her. This was the way the night sucker worked. That was a weird coincidence. Now on the case, almost from the beginning, where Detective Frank Salerno, who a few years back- Sir. Sir. Was the lead detective in the Hillside Strangler case. He was actually one of this the- This is most-
1: like a companion murder, though. Yeah, it kind of is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's
0: actually the one who solved it. He was already seen as a hero. The overtime hours from that case afford him a swimming pool. Good for him. Good for him. He deserved it. A and
1: swimming pool dumbass. filled with gold.
0: <laughs> filled with a plum. (laughs) Also working beside him was diligent detective Gil Carrillo. Sergeant
1: diligent. Sergeant diligent. (laughs) Detective (laughs) determination.
0: (laughs) Carrillo was vital in identifying who the night stalker was. Looks like a really nice guy. Yeah. If I'm gonna name the victims, let's
1: see his teeth.
0: Oh, he just doesn't brush. If I'm gonna name the victims, I should also name the task force assigned to his capture. Once they figured out that one guy was committing all these crimes, by the way, when Carrillo pitched the idea that there was one guy doing all this, they laughed at him. <laughs> They're like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> That's how insane and out of the ordinary these crimes were for one person to commit because they were all over the area. They barely fit any kind of pattern. How many were there? He was charged with 13 murders, okay. and I think like way more things that he did within a home that racked up. He was charged with bad
1: taste for his ACDC hat. He went to fashion court for that one. He went
0: to rock and roll court for that one. Dang, dang, you're rock and roll court.
1: <laughs> I'll shred for judge, for judge Flying V.
0: Everything's out of order there.
1: <laughs> out of order, out of order. <laughs> this whole courtroom's in order.
0: Task force comprised of Slurno in the lead, Carrillo at his side along with J.D. Smith, Russ Uloth, Jim Mercer, Bobby Glenn, and John Yarbaugh. Okay. The guys in charge of catching the Night Stalker. Catching the killer was going to be incredibly difficult because there was so little on him. All they had was bad teeth, uh, everything they learned from the victims they had shoe prints no DNA was left behind even though he did leave DNA behind he urinated in the toilet once and didn't flush he drank a Mountain <laughs> Dew and left it he spit up melon seeds on the floor there was no fingerprints no blood he what he
1: spit up melon seeds he I guess he, yeah he was eating people's stuff
0: yeah he was eating people's stuff but not
1: the melons
0: in the book they have a picture of a melon half eaten and it really grossed me out I don't know why that grossed me like of everything well they don't <laughs> have graphic pictures that was probably the most graphic picture they had
1: <laughs> bitten into melon that wasn't a melon
0: you had no idea where He's gonna strike next the house seemed like they're random but he like knew how powerful houses but from the reading he would drive like that one and then he would terrorize people it's so scary to think about sometimes he would leave no shoe prints no bullet casings but detective salerno and carrillo just had a gut feeling about this guy they like saw his pattern so they entered a the house even if it was completely different like no he's been here like I, I there's a feeling in the air one day they caught him trying to abduct a girl from eagle rock just during the day just pulled her into the car somebody called the police after they heard her scream and they pulled over a matching vehicle but Ramirez talked his way out of it so they're just gonna write him a ticket I guess when he heard over the cops radio about the car being stolen he bolted after drawing a pentagram on the car of course he escaped and the car give me a second just
1: a minute I gotta get this wing down
0: he escaped and the car sat in the police towing yard for days and Carrillo and Solano couldn't get access to see it because they had to like put in the proper paperwork and the guys at the station were being like no No, no. Bureaucracy. Found within the car.
1: Police should have free reign to do whatever they want. To whoever they want.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Everybody should be judged red. (laughs) So, any DNA he left in the car, and there would have been DNA because he left in a hurry, was burned off by the sun. What they did find in there was a wall. Do you
1: normally clean up your DNA before you leave a car? (laughs) Take your
0: time. (laughs) Spit, shine, spit, shine, spit, shine. Yeah, well, you spit everywhere. There's
1: no DNA in spit.
0: <laughs> we just found everything tastes like skills because we tasted it. He left a card in the car that he stole for a dentist appointment he was supposed to have. Good. Yeah.
1: Getting his life together. But all they learned
0: from that was that there was a guy named Rick along with a fake last name and <laughs> he had very bad teeth. So they kind of had him but not enough to like...
1: Does uh, he always... Uh, oh, that was him. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking he had some friend named Rick that no, had was, bad teeth also. He
0: was part of the same support group. Rick with bad teeth, Room. Hi, I'm Rick with bad teeth. Hi, Rick with bad teeth. <laughs> There are two other things that give his identity to the police. When he attacks one of the La- I think the one in Diamond Bar, there's a kid working on a bike, notices a strange car driving around there, like an orange car. Ramirez doesn't notice this kid working on this bike. A few days later after the murder covered, the kid let the police know and they found that car in a parking lot. Usually Ramirez is really good for wiping for prints but this time he left a single fingerprint on a rear view mirror. <laughs> Boom. One. After the murder of Peter Pan in San Francisco <laughs> sorry, Merced, the police released information and script
1: I don't know why this wasn't a national story <laughs> Peter Pan dead. <laughs> Not just dead. He never grew up. This cannot go in the episode. Come on, his name's Peter Pan.
0: (laughs) I read it and I thought, oh, Daniel's gonna laugh. Oh, boy, here it is. The police release information...
1: <laughs> Tinkerbell calls foul play.
0: <laughs> Hook brought in for questioning.
1: <laughs> Shmi won't talk.
0: <laughs> After the murder and robbery of Peter Pan and Merced, the police release information and descriptions of the jewelry that was stolen, and a man whose mother-in-law has dealings with the Ramirez in Arizona has come forward and describes the man he knows as Rick. Through different contacts, they come to different sources and eventually landed with the man in Echo Park, who had bought and all the stolen goods from Ramirez. Many of the times, they had bloodstains on them. Although they don't know each other's name would be able to point out Ramirez's face along with the stolen items so this was another thing that was going to come in. This along with the first thing a man from the Greyhound station got his daughter to call in and report that he knew this guy who looked like the police sketch. Why'd he make his daughter do it? Because he was a... Um, This guy that he described bought drugs at the Greyhound station and also worshipped Satan and would bring it up all the time. Which must have been annoying. If he's making people swear on Satan, he he seems really annoying. He didn't know his name, but he knew he was involved in another situation in which he stole a car and crashed into a different Greyhound station. So from that, they got the name Richard Ramirez. And boom, they had him. So now they just have to catch him, though. So, August 30th, 1985. Either the idiot's luck ran out or Satan got bored of his actions. Like, (laughs) let's stir things up a bit. Ramirez comes back to Alley from Tustin, by the way, of Greyhound.
1: Oh, no. I'm going to Tustin in a few weeks. Oh, uh, well, look out. I'm taking a
0: Greyhound. <laughs> I'm going to be at the station. My name's Richard Marin. <laughs> oh, no. My teeth. <laughs> What's going on? Don't that? look at my teeth. Don't look at my teeth. <laughs> my feet are growing right now. There's been no way for him to know on this trip that the police have ID'd him from fingerprints and witnesses from the Greyhound Terminal have come forward. However, <laughs> cops are waiting at the departing area of Ali's Terminal and he's arriving. Uh. So he slips by unnoticed, although he notices them. Then, outside of downtown, some women working at a fruit stand see him and start saying almaton, which means thug or killer. I heard also almatador, which just Means killer. How'd they know who he was? The police sketch. Oh. He's going around and everything, and it's because There's become- teeth. He probably had a photo of him some point. Oh, I feel bad for people with bad teeth during that era. Him! No, I just. I just need braces. I'm sorry, I just embraced this. So women on the street are like, oh, it's him. That's him. And he doesn't know what's happening. He can't figure it out. Like, why are people looking at me? I mean, you've killed people. but like, <laughs> What did sorry. I do? Yeah, I'm sure like, how'd you figure out? So he walks over to a store nearby and looks at the Spanish language newspaper, La Opinion. And sure enough, the news conference discussing his name and a police sketch were on the front page. By this time, owners of the store had called the police and he could already hear the sirens. So he books it, but not towards his familiar grounds of downtown LA. He crosses the bridge of valley River and enters the East LA. Oh, no. Rookie mistake.
1: <laughs> Vigilante justice kicks
0: in. <laughs> so, new plan. He wants to steal a car and drive to Mexico, as everybody who commits a crime does. A little derivative, but whatever. Uh, We've all been there. But not only is he walking suspiciously with suspicious intentions, but everyone who lives in LA who's been afraid of this guy knows him, and he's walking suspiciously and also happens to look like the Night Soccer. Spoiler, <laughs> it is the Night Soccer. These three teenage boys start following him and shouting out, call the police, we have him!" call the police, and he tries to scale him away. He's like, I have a gun! Get away from me, I have a gun! But he didn't pull it out. So they were calling out to the neighbors and everything, and then the helicopter in the area starts getting closer and closer, trying to look for you know. her mm-hmm. so he just books it he starts going through yards and stuff so he sees a woman sitting alone in a car and he approaches her in a panic saying my mother died I need your car and she's like no I don't care you're not taking my car so he tries to pull her out and threaten her saying he had a gun but there was too much ruckus so the girl's boyfriend came out along with some other guys Uh-oh. and chased him away they looked at each other like he saw these men approaching him and they looked at him like oh it's a nice sucker <laughs> everyone got scared of the
1: <laughs> hey you and it's Biff <laughs> hey you hey you get your damn hands off her this
0: was the basis of Back to the Future but it was much darker
1: Record. Same uh, year. <laughs> well, unless you're talking about... <laughs> He's
0: running through backyards and stuff trying to get away. But in East LA, in this area, all the houses are in such close proximity to each other. There's no really to get away and make a good move. You were like, everything you do is in someone's You're own. being watched. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's running around and people are seeing him hop walls and try to get away. And everyone's screaming. Like every You, you like, follow him for the trail of screaming. <laughs> and remember, it is the hottest summer on record. So he is just burning up, sweating his stupid satanic Why didn't ass. someone just shoot him? Why do you assume people in East LA have guns?
1: Guns. before i said that i was like this might sound a little racist <laughs> not even illegally i mean if everyone's seeing him somebody must have had a gun the sale
0: of guns did go up this summer so yeah but you don't know he's coming it's not like you're yeah. sitting there on a rocking chair like <laughs> i would be <laughs> why they wouldn't i don't know so i spend every summer <laughs> <laughs> so he lands himself on hubbard street in particular the 3700 block of hubbard right off of indiana near whittier boulevard so he ends up in the backyard of a man named richard muñoz muñoz happened to be in his backyard cooking up some burgers when a dude who looks <laughs> like a night stalker hops a wall so he starts whacking ramirez with an iron spatula so Ramirez bails and hops the wall into Fasino Pignon's wall, who was a pretty tough guy. Now, Pignon was working on the transmission to his daughter's Mustang. So the car was sitting with the engine on, jacked up, sitting on boxes. So Ramirez is like, dream come true. Here's the Mustang. And, and so Ramirez jumps in the car and tries to get away, but not before Fasino can come back and try to stop him. He grabs him basically by the neck and tries to pull him out. And it's not. In. So they grapple as the car is moving, but like <laughs> at a slow level. The car ends up crashing into the chimney of the house and it stalls. Once again, Ramirez bolts already. This though, is ridiculous. (laughs) This is a cartoon sketch.
1: I imagine, like, the whole, like, just gathering, like, the whole town is following him at this point. Yeah. So
0: he's running down Hubbard <laughs> Street, just sweating, just can barely make it. So a woman sees him and is trying to get into her car real fast, and he gets to her and tries to take the keys away to escape, but not before her neighbor, Jose Burgon, and his two sons approach him, followed by the woman's husband, Manuel de la Tora, and he runs up to him with a metal bar and cracks it, at the back of Richard Ramirez's head, which when I read that word, I'm like, oh,
1: that's so good. <laughs> his teeth straightened out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so he hits him behind the head really hard, once again, manages to get away from that all. And she's running. Down the street, but he's just dizzy and he's hot and sweaty. Did
1: the metal bar have the wrong sort of gunpowder in it?
0: Activate. <laughs> <laughs> I should have watched this thing. He's just stumbling down Hubbard Street, dizzy and sweaty.
1: And Where are the police?
0: On their way. Okay. But relax. <laughs> well, you don't like an angry mob? I do, but I want this to be done right. By the book! <laughs> so everyone on the street, it's like, the angry mob is following him now and everyone's like, I'm not under that's him. And he's like turning around and being defiant, like hissing at them and sticking his tongue out. and <laughs> The sign of the cross and stuff. So Delatora and the Burguan boys catch up to him and they give him the old metal bar special again right to the head and <laughs> knock him down to the ground and just stood there. That's a Night stalker. Boy bled at their feet, begging for death until the LAPD no, and Sheriff's No, you don't Department. get it. Yeah, you're not going to get it. Exactly. <laughs> until Sheriff's Department and LAPD came up to pick up the trash. <laughs> Way to go, LAPD.
1: Well, and LAPD. then they beat the guys that were hitting Ramirez.
0: <laughs> <laughs> What'd you do to this poor guy? There are rumors, and it's not mentioned in the research, but there are rumors I've heard many times before, that when the cops came for him, he begged to be taken away from the angry mob that had beaten him. <laughs> I really hope that's true. Yeah. I don't know if that is, but I really hope that is. They were later given awards by the city and were and still are oh, a really? hero. Good. for catching the Night Stalker. He was eventually charged with 13 murders and 31 other felonies related to his killing spree. November 7th of 89, he received 19 death sentences to which he responded, No big deal. Death always comes with the territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. What? Yeah. He remained a loyal servant to Satan, of course. This pleases Satan. There's a famous <laughs> photo of him holding up his hand with a, when he's in court and has a pentagon drawn on it. Weeb. Yeah, he's stupid. Following sentencing, Ramirez was transferred to death row at San Quentin State Prison, but not before backing a couple of ghoulish girls along the way. Yeah, everyone gets them. There's another thing that the Night Sockers were known for, and that's for having a really strong female fan base after he was caught. Mothers, lock up your daughters. Really, though, they're sick. Lock them up before we do. One of the jurors, Cynthia Hayden, fell for him while he was the stand and became a private investigator just to try to prove that he was innocent. Another woman, Laurel Kendall, was a former fashion model turned professional dominatrix in New York. Wrote to Ramirez that she fantasized about having sex with him in his prison cell. Other women wanted to have sex with him in their coffin. Other women wanted to have sex with him in a cemetery With the gravestone knocked over and blood of the victims all over, it was just gross. But the biggest fan was a woman named Doreen Loy, who was probably the most persistent of his little creeps. She was a freelance magazine editor, and she thought he was just so attractive. They were married in the main visiting area of San Quentin in 1996. She doesn't look anything like what you'd expect a woman who marries a man she knows to be <laughs> a serial killer to look like. She looks like everyone's Aunt Mabel. Also, an interesting story: while he was locked up before he was in San Quentin, when he was still in Alcatraz jail, Richard Ramirez had a big old fanboy moment when he he saw Sean Penn in the same jail who was in jail for reckless driving and fighting with an extra on the set of a movie when he was there he wrote him a fan letter that read hey Sean stay tough and hit him again Richard is 666
1: oh to god
0: to which Penn replied you know Richard it's impossible to be incarcerated and not fill a certain kinship with your fellow inmates well Richard I've done the impossible <laughs> i feel absolutely no kinship with you and I hope gas descends upon you before sanity does you know good for you Sean Penn his greatest role <laughs> <laughs> Richard Ramirez died in june of
1: 2013 oh my god that wow yeah he okay. really lasted b-cell june of 2013 that's remember june of 2013 yeah. it's coming up again he died
0: from b-cell lymphoma complications from that many think it's unfair that such a savage psychopath got to live his life while many other innocent people were cut short but you know if you had done the research richard Mares never wanted to live past being caught and the idea of rotting in prison made him sick to know he died in giant
1: well jail, gave him cancer no
0: he died in jail brings a big smile to my face
1: yeah. that's the nice thing. i wish he could die again
0: <laughs> just for all of
1: us to watch, <laughs> it's the Night Stalker. Well, I will never, ever be here during the summer again. Oh yeah, no,
0: I, it can be boiling hot. I'm like, Keep the window yeah, please. <laughs> no doggy doors.
1: <laughs> Sorry doggy, you gotta stay inside. You've got one uh, serial killer, I've got another one for oh, you. you.
0: I my, top my serial killer? Yeah. No, well, let's see. I've
1: got an import for you. This is like Pokemon. <laughs> I've got a level 40. <laughs> this is proof that the Soul is sending out a beacon to evil all across the globe, and isn't restricted to just local maniacs. Jack? Unterweger. Oh boy, what a great last name. Yep. Or as his mother named him Johann Unterweger. Oh, that's even better. Johan. Yeah. Johann! Johann. Ah, danke. <laughs> danke, Mutter. He was born August 16th, 1950 in Syria. In Not Syria. In Styria, Austria. Oh. Uh, but bleh. Bleh. His mom was a teenager when she had him and he never knew his dad. According to him, this is another sort of nature versus nurture sort of thing. These all kind of are. That's the big debate with serial killers. Whose fault is it? <laughs> According to him, his mom was also a prostitute. Though this is not not really a man whose word can be trusted. His mom went to jail for stealing when he was very young, so he was sent to live with his grandpa and step-grandma. Eventually, his mom got out of prison and married an American soldier that Jack believed to be his dad, but she never came back for him, so little Jackie was left to be raised by his alcoholic and abusive grandpa, who had a love for prostitutes. But again, don't always believe what this man claims. His childhood was not normal, and this we know for sure. (laughs) He got arrested at age 16 for assaulting a prostitute. Mm -hmm. This was one of 15 or 16 times during his teenage years that he was arrested. He was also accused of rape, abducting a minor, and assault with a steel rod. Oh.
0: I hate steel rods. My least favorite type of rod.
1: (laughs) My favorite rod is Sterling. I mean, Sterling. Got it? How did I get ice spell toast? Rod (laughs) Stu- He even tried to pimp out his own girlfriends. Oh, wow. Yeah. The most surprising part about what happened next is that it didn't happen sooner. He was 24 in December 1974 in Germany with his girlfriend when they were driving around one night and saw a friend of his girlfriend, Margaret Schaefer, walking down the street alone. He pulled over and picked her up and proceeded to drive into the woods with both girls, he forced himself sexually on Schaefer and when she resisted, he strangled her and then beat her to death.
0: Okay, well that's
1: awful. The thing, is, his girlfriend was there watching the whole thing. Shortly after his girlfriend told the police everything and he was taken to court, he told the judge that after he strangled Schaefer, quote, I envisioned my mother in front of me and I killed her. There was another murder from three years prior to this that many suspect he also committed but this was never proven. So Jack Unterweger was undeniably and admittedly guilty and was sentenced to life in prison in 1976 threat neutralized end of, end of story how could the story continue welcome to austria where the oh, story no. never I don't ends go to <laughs> vienna waits for you greg <laughs> he tried to kill himself 3 times in prison but then he, harder. then he got he got another idea there were two things that jack unterweger was great at i'll get to the second one later but the first was that he was great at manipulating people he could see what somebody wanted or needed and pull himself into that role in order to gain control over this person. Person, no matter what that role was He was described as part Hannibal Lecter Part Ted Bundy Part Mick Jagger
0: Mick is the one I have the most problems
1: with <laughs> I could tolerate a Bundy <laughs> Whether he thought this through or not What happened to him happened Austria in the 70s was still recovering from World War II And the role they played in it Which was not a very flattering one It's not remembered great. <laughs> no, it's not looked upon fondly It was a country craving redemption And what better way to prove that redemption is possible By demonstrating it himself So the country needed an aspiration Figure to strive for, and he was just the man to fill that role. Oh, that there was an ultra liberalism that was prominent in Vienna at the time, which tended to give artists every benefit of every doubt as a sort of reaction to how things were in World War II, where all artists were trash and scum, according to the Nazis. So, why not become an artist? That's why I got wow, into that, it. Is that how this... I'm an artist? <laughs> he kept very detailed diaries, so why not go with that? He started writing in his jail cell, and apparently, he was very good at it. He wrote poems, he wrote plays, he even even wrote children's stories that were performed on the radio. He wrote two books, Terminus Prison, which won awards, but his big one was Purgatory in 1983. This was his memoir that exposed his raw beating heart to all of Austria and they liked what was beaten. The book was a bestseller and he was even taught to children in schools. Not the first Austrian to write a bestseller from prison. What
0: was the other one?
1: Hitler. (laughs) It was his mind comp. They even made a movie of the book in 1989 that he himself co-wrote. He even posed for a movie poster with a noose around his neck. You'll find out later why that's funny. It was so well written that the country's intellectual elite decided that no murderer could create such beautiful art. And Unterweger saw this and basically reinforced to all of them that, yeah, you're right. I'm cured. Art had cured him. I'm an artist. They all started to lobby hard for his release, claiming that he was a changed man. He was a triumph of the concept of rehabilitation, according to them.
0: Except.
1: <laughs> Nobel Prize winning authors were praising him. Oh. High ranking officials and esteemed psychiatrists in Vienna were on his side. Petitions were signed to get him free. And on May 23rd, 1990, he was paroled. He got his life sentence knocked down to 14 years for being a model prisoner. And
0: that's why the jail system doesn't work.
1: <laughs> we meant a dog's life sentence. When he got got out of prison he was already a national celebrity the people of austria loved his book and most of all they loved him he was on magazine covers he was on talk shows he was doing live readings from his book his play scream of fear <laughs> It got a state grant to be staged and toured around. Yeah, I want Oop. to go on the tour. I have a shirt from that tour.
0: I survived it.
1: <laughs> he became a reporter for the Austrian ORF, which is their equivalent to the BBC. He got a BMW with a license plate that said Jack one He's the Jack from Jack FM. (laughs) He'd go around wearing white suits with hibiscuses in the lapel, gold chains around his wrists, and a white hat, a Navajo vest, and white snakeskin boots.
0: Bloodstains and white stuff is just so alluring if you're a psychopath.
1: Just dweebs. Dweebs These people are dweebs. dweebs. If you don't see him dressed like Midnight Cowboy, (laughs) you, you could find him posing shirtless, showing off his prison tattoos. Oh, cool. Women, again, were drawn to him. He would apparently be in dozens of relationships at once. Little did all of Austria know, most everything in this supposed memoir of his was made up. He had built up his own mythology and it didn't take long for him to pick up right where he had left off before prison. The September after he was released, Unterweger was in Prague in his BMW for a reading of passages from his book. While he was there, a prostitute named Blanka Bokova disappeared. Next month, Unterweger was in Bratz, Austria, when a well-known prostitute named Brümhilde Masser went missing too. It's a weird coincidence. Yeah. Case closed. Yeah, well,
0: this stuff happens, yeah. It happens. People go missing.
1: Eastern Europe, come on. (laughs) Then in November, both these women's bodies were found in the woods on the outskirts of their respective towns. Their bodies were found lightly covered with leaves and twigs. Both were posed in sexually suggestive poses on their back or stomachs with their legs spread open. Both had signs of being beaten and both were found with their stockings or bras tied around their necks. It took a third prostitute, Heidi Hammerer, to go missing in December in Bregenz. Austria for the police to put together that they have a serial killer on their hands prostitution was legal in Austria so this sort of thing didn't normally happen like there was no reason for this to happen then the parents of this third victim started getting phone calls on their unlisted number from a man taunting them about having a prostitute for a daughter her body turned up on the outskirts of town seven months later mostly decomposed but killed and posed in a similar fashion as the other two then spring of 1991 the flurry broke out when prostitutes named Elfried Schrempf, Sylvia Zagler, Sabine Moizzi, Regina Prem, and Karen Slodke iroglu all turned up dead in the outskirts of Graz and Vienna. The common thread that nobody put together or wanted to yeah. put together was that Unterverger was in each of these places when these women disappeared. No,
0: he's rehabilitated. he's,
1: he's a changed man. He's an author. The sure. pen is mightier than his throttling hands. In case you didn't put it together, Unterverger was the killer. Yeah. He would go to one of these places for work, pick up a prostitute drive them to the outskirts of town or to an empty parking lot tie them up as part of their normal business and then when they were tied up his mood would shift and he'd force them out of the car and march them into the woods naked if they resisted he would kick and beat them then he would strangle them to death with their own bras or stockings and pose and bury their bodies Then, in a touch of insane audacity, when the story broke that there was a prostitute serial killer on the loose, he, being a reporter, set himself up as the main correspondent on the story. He went around interviewing prostitutes, police chiefs, everybody on national TV, and he was everywhere on national TV covering the crimes that he himself was committing.
0: Was Austria so blind from the embarrassment of Nazism that they're like, but we're not any authority figure at all? Who are we? We we can do
1: this. <laughs> and then the Cecil called and told him that his room was ready. Oh. Unterweger accepted a few Don't <laughs> He accepted a few jobs from a few magazines in Austria to write articles on crime and prostitution what does he know about? in L.A. So he flew over and on June 11th, 1991, Jack Unterweger checked into the Cecil Hotel. Why the Cecil? Some think he did it out of homage to Richard Ramirez, oh. but there isn't much evidence to support that. More likely he did it out of homage to Charles Bukowski's love of gross LA because he kept a copy of one of Bukowski's books on the window still the whole time during his stay.
0: You know who didn't love
1: that was probably Charles Bukowski. <laughs> no, he liked it. <laughs> Even more likely he was there because the Cecil spares nobody and it was only $25 a night. What we know for sure is that the killings in Austria miraculously stopped during the five weeks that he was in LA. But put it... the Hardy Boys on it. <laughs> they were killed in the Holocaust. <laughs> but he was very productive in LA. He wrote articles. He wrote some short stories about young prostitutes in Holocaust. He went to a festival in Echo Park. He went to Hollywood Park trying to find Bukowski. He ate at Hugo's in Santa Monica. He spent a lot of time in Silver Lake. He went to the gay pride parade, which he hated. He He started dating a receptionist from the Cecil named Carolina. He hung out at the Parker Center LAPD headquarters to learn as much as he could about the seedy underbelly of the city. He even went on a ride along where they showed him exactly where to find prostitutes. Seventh Street.
0: Where do people usually dump bodies at?
1: Just wondering for a friend, friend. Rick. So all the prostitutes turned out were right near his hotel. He would pay them $30 and make them climb up the fire escape to get to his room. Then he began his work. Sharon Exley's body was found June 20th, 1991, on the shoulder of the 60 Freeway in Boyle Heights, strangled with her own bra. He had killed her at 7th and Fickett in Boyle Heights, which is now an elementary school. (sighs) Irene Rodriguez was found June 30th in a truckloading area at First and Myers in Boyle Heights, right by the river, strangled with her own bra. Sherry Long, a.k.a. Peggy Jean Booth, was found July 10th near Coral Canyon Road in Malibu, strangled with her own bra. All were prostitutes. The first two worked near the Cecil. The last one worked Hollywood, which adds up because Unterweger checked out of the Cecil on July 2nd and stayed in Hollywood for a while before he left L.A. for good on July 16th. The police had no idea who was doing this. All they knew was that whoever did it had scoped out the locations to dump the bodies beforehand. Back in Austria, a retired cop saw what had been done to local women, and it sparked a memory of what Unterweger had done in the 70s. It seems that the police already kind of suspected him, but they didn't want to acknowledge that so they wouldn't look bad for having let him back out of prison in the first place. They also knew how adored he was by the public and didn't want to risk their ire by going after him, so they secretly started keeping an eye on all of his actions, financial and otherwise. After a few months, Unterweger got tipped off from a friend that he was a suspect in the murders. In response, since he was still covering the case, he started criticizing the police for not having caught the killer yet and started to turn the public against the police rather than wow. him. By this time, he was living with his 18-year-old fiancée, Bianca Mrock. Their eyes open! Uh, Rock said he was a control freak and got her an interview to become a prostitute so that he could live off of her money, which is he often lived off the money of the women he knew. But she still loved him and she convinced him that they should leave Vienna since he was a suspect. They went to Switzerland where he made Merock take a job as a bartender. Then Rock's parents reported her as missing and hearing who her fiance was, they wanted to find her before he killed her, which according to some journals they found, that's what was going to happen. The police raided Unterweger's apartment in Vienna But inside, they did find pictures of him with female members of the LAPD, a menu from a restaurant in Malibu, and receipts from the Cecil Hotel. This got the Vienna police wondering what he was doing in LA, so they contacted the LAPD, who confirmed that there were three unsolved murders during his time there, and upon reviewing the evidence, the bras used to kill the women in LA matched exactly the knots used in the bras to kill the women in Europe. Then, a strand of hair found in Unterweger's abandoned BMW was found that matched, the DNA of the hair of his first victim in Prague. Then they matched some strands of clothing found on some of the bodies to one of the scarves in Unterweger's closet. So the hunt was officially on. The (laughs) Unterweger. But he was already on the move. From Switzerland they had driven to Paris and then flown to New York and then finally to Miami. All along the way he was writing and calling into news outlets in Austria insisting he was innocent and that the police were framing him.
0: I'm gonna keep moving though.
1: (laughs) Don't worry about me. I'm fine. He insisted that he loved his freedom him too much to risk it all by killing again and that he would rather kill himself than go back to prison. In Miami, he made his fiance get a job as a stripper while he kept defending himself to the Austrian media and rally the intellectuals on his side again. Eventually, his credit cards were traced to to Miami Miami? and when he went to the local Western Union to collect some money sent to him by an ex-girlfriend, the police surrounded him and he was under arrest. Initially, he was like, oh, let me get tried in LA because there were only three victims there. Then he realized California had the death penalty. (laughs) So on May 28th, he was like, all right, let's go to Austria. He went back to Austria. He was accused of 11 counts of murder in three countries. It was called the trial of the century in Austria, I guess, except for the Nazis. (laughs) He insisted. <laughs> this is a whole new century <laughs> for Austria, for the Reich. Oh Lord, boy. Why should he say that? Reich power. <laughs> he insisted the entire time that he was innocent. Twenty women sat crying in the courtroom for him during the trial. Oh. It actually came to light that he had relations with over hundred fifty women, Trust. and even had in his address book the names of forty women with their sexual performance rated. <laughs>
0: But who's gonna rate your performance, Unferger?
1: God. He even had two serious girlfriends at once who he was living with simultaneously. How do you do that? Uh, I, I'm uh, going yeah, to work. Let
0: me change my coat.
1: Before his sentencing, he repeatedly told his lawyer that he would kill himself if he was found guilty and wrote in several letters to friends that suicide was the final freedom. Fine, whatever. People thought he was just trying to get attention. The night before the sentencing, a bomb exploded outside the courthouse in some sort of attempt to disrupt the proceedings. He was found guilty on nine counts of murder, not for the other two because in those cases all that was left of the victims were bones when they found him, so they couldn't prove those. That night, June 29th, 1994, in Graz, Jack Unterweger demonstrated yet again the second skill that he was great at that I mentioned before and hanged himself in the jail cell. He was great at tying knots. He hung himself off a curtain rod using a piece of wire and the drawstring from his jogging pants, presumably because a bra wasn't handy. (laughs) In one final piece of evidence, the knot he used in his noose matched exactly the same as all the others. He was found dead at 3.40 AM and he died before his appeal. So technically his guilty verdict was not legally binding. This story was eventually made into an opera by John Malkovich. (laughs) And earlier this year was even an Austrian movie called Jack. Many in Austria still think he was framed as some sort of class warfare police conspiracy, even though he is considered to be the first global serial killer. The story isn't that well known in LA because while all this was happening, the city was distracted by the officers on trial for the Rodney King beating, and then OJ happened, so this kind of got like glanced over. But at least Unterweger can be proud that he was convicted of two separate life sentences. So good for him. That is Jack Unterbeger. What a dirtbag. Gross. 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 And if you look at him, he's like, uh, I I
0: wouldn't do anything. (laughs) I just want to go for a ride. To the woods.
1: He looks like a skull. He's very gross looking. His teeth are great though.
0: Not the same could be said about a handsome old Richard Ramirez.
1: (laughs) Now a shorter, like we were saying, it's sad that the one you're about to tell us is like the
0: light one of the four we're doing. Yeah, I know. This is about the death of like a local celebrity. You know how like some areas have like... Oh there's the Jesus on rollerblades guy yeah. and the only The guy who her. sings with the dog puppet. Exactly, exactly. This happened in nineteen sixty four, June of nineteen sixty four on a Saturday. It was the death of pigeon lady of Pershing Square, as she was known. She was murdered at the Cecil. She was sixty five year old woman. Her name was Goldie Osgood. She was strangled, stabbed, and raped in her room. Okay. Osgood was known as an incredibly friendly woman who would often be seen feeding the smaller birds at Pershing Square, those who struggled to forage for themselves. <laughs> she would also scare away larger birds which threatened her favorite little birds birds uh, I would be angry if I was a big You
1: bird. get out of here big bird
0: <laughs> I like little birds <laughs> she did this every day she went out there and feed the birds she was a retired telephone operator who now spent her days just hanging around Persian prison square looking after the little birds because who else is gonna prison square must oh, be man. really nice in the 60s <laughs> the man they suspected
1: it doesn't sound nice according to what happened to her <laughs> I guess
0: not no well it didn't happen at prison square <laughs> no.
1: yeah that's right it happened at the Cecil yeah. Hotel the
0: man who they suspected of this was a 29 year old unemployed laborer named Jox Ellinger they arrested him after they found bloodstains on his clothes he also admitted to knowing Osgood and was in the vicinity of the Cecil at the time of the murder but they released him after they were convinced he had nothing to do with the murder okay i swear, I swear. all right uh, well he swore on god so. they think whoever the killer was was the same man who killed another woman in a nearby hotel a year earlier a 50 year old woman named viva brown who was from oakland Oscar was found by a hotel employee who was distributing phone books the room was ransacked and some stuff was taken beside her bed was a paper bag of feed and a dodger's cap uh, just that
1: that's just
0: horrible. Many of her friends came out to pay tribute at the Persian Square. They laid flowers down for her which the birds probably picked at. Uh, the killer of the pigeon lady and Viva Brown was never found. They never found out who did that. Why? Like, why? I don't know. Because it's the Cecil and you could just get away. There is
1: no kill. why. There
0: is no why. Just kill somebody. Yeah. How do you go in a hotel and kill somebody and you don't get caught?
1: You want to know how? I'm about to tell you. Let's get into it. That was a little breather for you. Yeah,
0: how was that minute?
1: Now on to the big one which may be the strangest thing ever to happen at the Cecil yeah. Hotel.
0: This is the one where it made us aware of the Cecil Hotel. Yeah.
1: yeah. And it's not like like the other ones were like, well, it didn't happen at the Cecil. Yeah. These were just guys who stayed at the Cecil. A- aside from, yeah. aside from the pigeon lady. Yeah. But like, this is almost a, like a locally grown, the Cecil sort of like wanted to tell something to us and it did this. It's
0: just the Cecil's <laughs> opus.
1: It was a work of art, really. Elisa Lamb. Get into it. Here we go. You may or may not know this story. It was very popular when it first happened. So if you don't know, or in case you wanted a refresher, here it is. In case you had finally gotten to sleep well at night. (laughs) Here we go again. Put
0: down the glass of water you're drinking. (laughs)
1: Or take a big gulp so you can spit it out. On January 28th, 2013, 21-year-old Elisa Lamb checked into the Cecil Hotel. She was set to check out on January 31st. She never did. On February 1st, since she had never failed to be in contact with her parents every Every single day, she was reported missing by her parents. She had been last seen the night before her checkout alone by one of the desk clerks. Other than that, there was no clue where she had gone. All her stuff was still in her room. Posters went up around downtown. Nobody had seen her. Police searched all over the hotel for her. They went into as many rooms as they could, although since it was also a long-term residence, there were some rooms that they could not enter without probable cause. They searched the roof with dogs, nothing. Then, over two weeks later, on February 19th, A guest in room 320 complained that the water pressure in his room was terrible. It was just trickling out of the taps. Other people later reported that the water in their rooms also was coming out looking, smelling, and tasting weird. In some cases, the water would run out of the faucets black. The maintenance guy, Santiago Lopez, went up on the roof at 10 a.m. that day to the water tanks to investigate. And he noticed the hatch to one of them was open. He climbed up and looked inside. And there she is. What are you doing in there? (laughs) Can you get out of there? Floating about 12 inches from the top of the tank was Elisa Lamb. She was dead and naked, but her clothes were sunk down in there too. Police were called, and because of the positioning of the water tanks, they had to chainsaw her body out of there at about 4.30 p.m. The Cecil was kind enough to offer to relocate the guests who were repulsed at having been drinking and bathing in corpse water for over two weeks. 27 guests were moved to the Mayfair Hotel. 11 guests didn't mind. I wonder who's guilty. (laughs) But they did have to sign a waiver every time they entered the building and were given a nice supply of water bottles and apparently were offered a 25% discount of their stay.
0: Here's a death coupon, here's a corpse
1: coupon. 1% for every day she was in the water tank. The tank she had been decomposing in not only supplied the rooms, but also provided water for the coffee shop and the kitchen downstairs, and was being used to wash the linens. Health officials ordered a don't drink order and tested the water and concluded that at the time of the testing, the water was safe to drink, probably because of the chlorine that was in the tank, but that was at the time of the testing, which was almost three weeks after she first got in there. Nevertheless, the water was only used for for flushing toilets during the three-day sanitization process. By the end of the month, the guests that had left sued the Cecil for allowing them to drink corpse water. And that September, the parents of Elisa Lamb sued the Cecil for wrongful death for not properly controlling access to the roof of the building. Let's make it a little bit stranger now. A straightforward case would not capture people's attention like this one did, would it? What I just told you are the dry facts of what could immediately be observed of what happened. Let's color in the details. First of all, getting to the roof. There were four ways of getting to the roof of the Cecil. There's the staff door, which is locked and armed with a working alarm. If anyone somehow goes through that, it would alert the staff at the front desk. So no one's getting through there without the staff knowing. Then there are three fire escapes that you can climb up the sides of the building to get there. There have been a lot of people that it, like afterwards went to the Cecil to investigate these options with videos and articles online. Apparently, it's very easy to get to the roof using one of the fire escapes if you're willing to climb a ladder up the side of the building on the 14th floor. The detective seemed to think she went through the staff door, though. Yeah. But if she did, an alarm would have alerted the staff who would have come to investigate unless the staff were the ones taking her through that door. Then once she's on the roof, there's four water tanks. They're eight feet tall and four feet wide and can hold about 1,000 gallons of water. They must have little ladders on them that you can climb up, but looking at the pictures, I don't see them. Uh, So if they're there, they're like on the inner sides where you can't see them in a picture, which would not make it easy to get up there as shown by how they needed to use a chainsaw to get her out of there. It would be even harder for a person to be carrying her body up into one. The latches on the tank are easy enough to open because they're not locked, but people wonder how she managed to close the lid behind her after she got in if she had gotten in a lot by herself as the lids are very heavy. I think maybe she just like opened it a little bit like woo and then closed it behind her. They also found no DNA or fingerprints on the tanks other than her own so the police concluded she went in there alone. But why would she do that? Obviously something strange was going on when she first checked in. Lam was in room 506B which was a shared room but her roommates complained that she was acting really strange so she was moved into her own private room. Then on the night she disappeared Bernard Diaz who had been living in the Cecil for 32 years at that point, was in the room on the floor just below hers. He said that he heard on the night that she went missing a lot of noise on the floor above him. There was even a thump so loud that it made him fall out of bed. Then his whole floor flooded, which the staff says was due to an obstruction in the drain between the third and fourth floor. What's that
0: even? I
1: don't know. I'm giving you the facts. I don't know. Her body was in the pipe, maybe? (laughs) And then there's the, the weirdest part of the whole thing. The elevator video. Let's get into it. Video from a security camera inside the hotel's elevator was released on February 13th while the police were still trying to find her, I presume in an attempt to get an image of her out there, but this video ended up being what really sparked all the conspiracy theories. The footage is from just moments before she ended up in the water tower. It took place on the 14th floor, which is where you access the roof from, and apparently was where Richard Ramirez was staying, like you said. She is shown going into the elevator, behaving a little strange, then the elevator doors do not close. She gets out and looks around. Seems a little afraid and looks like she's hiding in the elevator. Then gets back out and seems to be talking to somebody who's out of view. And Then the weirdest part of all, she starts doing this horrifying movement with her hands that I
0: have—I
1: don't know. There's yeah, no explanation yeah, yeah, for that.
0: It's just playing wacky.
1: She gets back in the elevator. It still doesn't close. Then she gets out for good. And eventually, the elevator doors close. Not long after this, she is in the tank. Like later, uh, right, or something like that. Yeah, not like. Next Stop! She pressed tank on the button. What was she doing with her hands? Who was she talking to? Was she trying to hide from somebody who we couldn't see? Why weren't the elevator doors closing? Was a staff member overriding the closed door command? Why wasn't she wearing her glasses? Is it okay to cheat on your girlfriend if it's with a man? Even stranger than her behavior in this video is that there is no denying that the video has been edited. There's about 54 seconds missing from this footage. You can even see a weird jump in the elevator door closing. Was there another person in the video that got edited out? If the police were just editing out the dead air when lamb wasn't in the picture why then did they still include the shot of the elevator doors closing yes. is it for dramatic effect <laughs> do police do that
0: they want to join
1: film school yeah. they're <laughs> all rejects from film school also the video is slowed down It slowed down. This may have been so that people could get a better look at her, but you can see her fine in the sped up. You can watch the sped up version on the internet. The sped up version isn't as scary in some ways and looks less bizarre, but it's still really unsettling. Some people explain her behavior in the video and ask like, well, put yourself in her shoes and imagine how you'd look if someone watched a video of you with no sound as you're frustrated with an elevator door that won't close or like if your internet won't connect, you would look insane. Or maybe she was on drugs. However, in the autopsy, there were no drugs found in her body and she had no history of using drugs. However, however, maybe they didn't test for the right kind of drugs or maybe the drugs were not detectable by the time they found her body. One of the amateur investigators who went up there got into the exact elevator she had been in and said he pushed the hold door button and it took a minute and 54 seconds for the doors to finally close, which may explain what was going on. It makes sense also that she might have pressed the wrong button on accident because she she didn't have her glasses on. She's like, really? like She's up close. It's unsettling. I don't like it. There also was supposedly another surveillance video from earlier that night that the police never released of her coming into the hotel with two men who were holding a box that they then give to her. Then they leave, and she went into the elevator alone, presumably up to her room, and then later on to die. (laughs) Then there was the fact that her clothes were found to have unidentified particles in them that were kind of like sand. They don't know what it was or where it came from although some people have tried to connect it to a murder that happened a couple months later on march 4th 2013 where a prostitute named tina huang was found face down in the sand in newport beach so they try to connect it maybe it's related one of the most disturbing parts of all of this is that six months after she died new posts started showing up on her tumblr really yeah and not just like like it fit in with other things she had posted that's It's very. This might be connected to her supposedly having had her phone stolen a little before she died, but who was posting it? And why would they post like, well, she would post this. Like, how would they know? Why would they do that? Then in one final insane twist to the story, as they were looking for her body, the largest tuberculosis outbreak in a decade hit Skid Row with a strain of tuberculosis unique to LA that exposed over 4,600 people. CDC scientists were called in to help, and to screen people for it, they employed a test known as lipoarabinomannan enzyme linked immunosorbent assay or LAM ELISA. <sighs> I have oh, nothing to say no about that. No
0: explanation for that.
1: That's insane. It's weird. Like I said, this whole bizarre case, it was incredibly popular around town and the country, maybe due to Lambs having parents from Hong Kong and speaking Cantonese. Her story became an obsession in Asia also, especially in China, where the elevator video got over 3 million views in one week. Some media outlets in China got a little too carried away and started accusing some singer from a death metal band as the murderer, and they basically made the entire country think that it was this guy. Oh. A Chinese movie director wanted to make a movie about her and even came to stay at the Cecil to find his inspiration. A director in Hong Kong even added an elevator scene to his horror movie after he heard about this. Back in North America, a band from Vancouver named The Zolas made a music video based on how they imagined her last days. They did an episode of Castle where they found the body of a student in the water tower of a hotel called The Cedric. This episode also had elevator surveillance footage involved and was released just three months. Months after her body was found a little too soon. Right now, Elisa Lamb was stated as the inspiration for the current season of American Horror Story Hotel, which take place in the Cortez Hotel as they That's call the it.
0: Same.
1: But Lady Gaga does work at the Cecil. <laughs> so she got big break. This has drawn a lot of corpse lovers to come gawk at the Cecil, and many want to stay in the Elisa Lamb suite. Oh. But it's now off-limits. Sony is in the process of making a movie about her and the Cecil in general called The Bringing, where a detective investigates her death in the hotel and goes crazy or something. I'm not going to watch that. I'm going to watch that, and you're going to watch it with me. (laughs) I'm going to hold
0: my hand while I watch
1: it. (laughs) Another weird coincidence is that in 2005, a movie came out called Dark Water that involved dark water running out of the faucets of a building due to a corpse, and in the end of the movie, the main character is in an elevator that won't work. The name of that character? Cecilia Her official death report Which came out June 21st 2013 Just when Richard Ramirez died Two months later than they said That they would release it Didn't put any sort Of definitive end To the speculation either They never ran A rape kit on her Which many found To be suspicious There was said To be no sign Of external Or internal trauma Or injuries But some experts Who reviewed the results Said that what they Were describing Actually Yeah that is external And (laughs) internal trauma And injuries Although, this could just be due to the condition they found her body in, which, in case you forgot, was decomposing in a tank of water, so it's probably hard to get a definitive sort of autopsy. They ruled out any foul play, but at the same time, they dismissed the possibility that she intended to kill herself. So, what do we, like, what do we do with that? The initial cause of death was written as accidental, but then crossed out and replaced with undetermined, and then finally settled that the cause of death was accidental due to drowning, with bipolar disorder as a significant condition. And there's the key maybe to this entire thing. Elisa Lam, aside from being a supernatural superstar, was a human also. And a human who was suffering from bipolar disorder. She was a Canadian tourist going on a tour of California from San Diego to Santa Cruz on vacation from school at the University of British Columbia, from which she had missed a lot of class due to her depression. Her blogs, this is, uh, everybody grab a tissue with your spiked eggnog. Her blogs offer a glimpse into her life. She wrote things in it like, I spent about two days in bed hating myself. I have no control over my emotions. I will be angry for two minutes and then sad again. I will be happy for half an hour and then emotional again. Expecto Patronum, depression sucks. (laughs) She once claimed that she was raped. One of the last posts in her blog, which she hadn't updated since April 4th, 2012, said, "'The only thing that does make you different is that you're a complete, utter failure and have depression. So la-di-da, that makes you special. Why aren't you so proud of that?' Oh, it's special because people can pity you and you can manipulate them with their pity and use them to just wheedle out more time, but you don't do anything. God, I hate you so much." So this is a girl who's really struggling. She was taking Welbutrin and Lamectil for her depression, but her toxicology reports seemed to be inconclusive about if she had been taking her medication when she died. The whole situation was a little confused as well because her parents didn't immediately tell the police about her condition and that one time in the past she had actually even disappeared for an extended period of time and had to have some sort of treatment when they finally found her. But when she was here, other than apparently odd behavior in that shared room, she seemed to actually be happy. She went to a taping of Conan. Oh, did she? Good for her. She shopped at the last bookstore. When she first got to the Cecil, she put on her Tumblr, which is called Nouvelle Nouveau, in case you're interested, which you should be, fairly certain this is where Boz Lerman needs to film The Great Gatsby, and she tagged that, we, it's sunny. But you never really know. She had bipolar disorder. There's a body language analysis of her behavior in the elevator video that says she started relaxed, then got worried, but still playful, then shows some sexual interest, maybe to someone she saw outside the elevator, then more anxiousness, followed by joy. They classified it as almost like a sort of game of hide-and-seek, but the point is, she showed anxiety, but she was never afraid. So she may have been playing a game with somebody who may or may not have been the culprit we're looking for, or she simply had a psychotic break, and in Doing So she might have just wanted somewhere to hide for herself like she seemed to be doing in the elevator She was kind of hiding the search for somewhere to hide might have led her onto the roof and into one of the water Towers where she probably got in when the tank was full But then people started using water and the level dropped and dropped and dropped until she was no longer able to reach the lid To climb back out as the tank was only three-quarters full when they found her with this is what the police believe Some people say that her case was dismissed too quickly because she was quote-unquote mentally ill So there's the explanation and yeah. <laughs> And it was a neat and vague explanation for what happened. But taking context that on February 3rd, when the search for Elisa Lam was just starting, the Christopher Dorner rampage started. Oh. So the police were a little distracted yeah. at the moment. So this may have just been a really sad story of a girl who lost her struggle against herself. But I'm still wondering why did it have to happen at the Cecil? Like why there of all places? But the more I learned about it, the more the Cecil sort of became not just a place I am terrified of, but also a place that I sort of pity. It's a sad sort of place. Or, as the headline quote on Elisa Lam's Tumblr page put it, you're always haunted by the idea that you're wasting your life. Oh, the Cecil. Oh, Cecil. Oh, Cecil. You, you came, came and you gave, gave me nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about why we got turned on to the Cecil. My sweet Melissa, <laughs> my girlfriend, she like went downtown one time and was like, oh my god, I saw this place. It was so cool. We should like stay there one time. It's this hotel. It was so nice. It was this old hotel. It's called the something with a C. It's some like fancy name with a C. I'll
0: find it for you, sweetheart. Uh, yeah,
1: and I find <laughs> Oh, this is do you know what happened here? Like This is the most horrifying place on earth. She felt like betrayed that she had fallen in love with this place. And then it like turned on her. And then she got obsessed with the Elisa Lam case. Both
0: of you got me obsessed.
1: And then you pointed out Elisa Lam is an anagram of Melissa, which freaked her out. And then the tuberculosis outbreak, she got tuberculosis somehow. Right? Yeah. And also she, a friend of hers, said that she was working at the Cecil, but got fired like a few weeks before the Elisa Lam thing. And then they called her, like investigators called her later and was like, you didn't drink any water did you even though she had been gone before this yeah. all happened so
0: that's all over the it's place
1: it's hell I remember
0: when he told me you, ex- you explained it like it was like a shining thing like I've always been here yeah
1: <laughs> one of the sculptures in the lobby was of Melissa
0: <laughs> upon further investigation the Elisa Lamb thing has like a similar twinkle the same as the like the Black Dahlia thing like it's almost you pity Elizabeth Short the same way you pity like Elisa Lamb. like no yeah. matter what happens to her you look at her as this gem in the middle of this yeah. big mist yeah
1: and and Pauline like the women both yeah. the women all the not all the women but both the both the main women in this are like them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, what? Oh. They just wanted to feed pigeons and see Conan. <laughs> <laughs> Don't
0: we all want to do
1: that? Speaking of the Black Dahlia, the rumor that the Black Dahlia was last seen there is not true. No, yeah, there's
0: so many rumors about Yeah, But
1: are. trust me, we were upset about
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the other hotels in the area, like the Rodlin stuff is free, going on. But the Cecil just has, it's like the Overlook. Like, yeah, they're
1: they're like the, the Yankees of, <laughs> <laughs> of haunted hotels. <laughs> I wanted
0: to record this episode nope, there, and you talked nope, me out of it, but nope. now that we've gone over this, I'm like, I'm so hope oh, that we're yeah. safe imagine
1: if we're like all right and we're done recording we stop the button and just a voice is like in the water tank <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. all right
1: the water's fine
0: and us never question anything <laughs> yeah okay whatever you say doesn't matter. <laughs> i brought my soy trunks just in case <laughs> yeah it's a terrible yeah i don't like, like it every time we're like oh let's go to Coles. or let's do like well we gotta walk by the salt. So <laughs> we just have to yeah
1: like, no, <laughs> we gotta get an eye full. yeah
0: we've <laughs> Doing research on Richard Ramirez, I haven't been able to go home the same way. Cause now oh, God. At this, I was like, okay, who's in here? Yeah. He is it to get in here. What's
1: the temperature threshold where I can open the window? <laughs> like I was saying, like I was doing research at work, so I'm sitting there reading about like, and then Unterweger yeah. tied the bra, and then a, like a little kid's coming up to me. Do you know where the Atlases are?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Please don't go home tonight. Never go to Vienna. <laughs> it's funny reading like the same decade that gave us Fernando the also gave us Richard Ramirez. Like Mexican-Americans yeah. had a lot to deal with that decade. The 80s was hard for Mexican American <laughs> and also Mexican and also the 90s and, uh, and also the- reading the stories of him and his exploits. I'm just like, just catch him already. <laughs> like, what page do they catch him? Can I just get there? Just catch him because I'm tired of reading about. And then he yeah, came to the next house. I like true crime a lot, and I've always worried that I was the kind of dweeb that was like, What's your favorite serial killer? But I'm not like reading this. It just made me really hate having to be on the side of the guy with the knife. Who's the cop who's tired of like his kids? Like, of to swing him on the swing set, and he's like, I gotta catch this.
1: Sorry, he shot someone near skateland <laughs> can't come to your birthday party i gotta
0: interview the two people got shot
1: <laughs> do you want to switch your birthday party to skateland so i could do double duty <laughs> if you made it out of the 80s alive not many people
0: did.
1: <laughs> leave us a review on itunes yeah. i don't know why you don't it's so much fun it's I one of my about. favorite things. i've left 15 of them for us already
0: praise non uh, praise just right?
1: praise praise praise
0: just tell us if we're steering in the right direction
1: yeah. do you like hearing about
0: uh deaths Do you want more of these types of episodes? We could switch entirely to a true crime of Los Angeles. (coughs)
1: Every episode can be about the Cecil if you want. (laughs) I'm sure every room has a story to tell. So leave us a review on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. That's simple enough. Hit the button. Hit the button, baby. Turn the key. (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at LA Meekly. Instagram is a lot of fun. LA underscore Meekly. We got a lot of pictures. You'll see a lot of things from the Cecil. Uh, We went there. We did go there. We just didn't stay there. Because if you stay there, you can never leave. We got really close to the elevator. and Everyone's like... Oh my god. That was yeah, I didn't like that. No, yeah, that was too I felt like it was gonna open and blood was gonna (laughs) fall out of it. What type of blood is this? (laughs) I'm allergic! (laughs) Send us an email if you want. la.meekly at gmail.com. Also, we're on Stitcher now. If you somehow you're listening to this, but you'd rather listen to it on Stitcher, find us on Stitcher. We're there. Check out our
0: Tumblr page, lameekly.tumblr.com. That is the hub of our...
1: It's the den of evil. It's the Cecil of this whole operation.
0: Exactly, yeah. It is definitely haunted. There's long-term residents. Some people stop by (laughs) really quickly, but everybody gets a taste, you know? (laughs) So that's it. That was our third annual Creepy Christmas Hanukkah. And
1: we wish you a creepy... Christmas and Haunted Hanukkah. I expect uh, eight gifts.
0: Just give me one big one.
1: (laughs) One for every person that's jumped off the Cecil.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we hope you had a good year. I'm looking forward to part four of this.
1: You mean parkour? Parkour, of course. You mean parkour? Yeah, parkour. <laughs> Creepy Christmas, Haunting Hanukkah, right, parkour. Doesn't... Yeah, have a happy holidays. Watch the commercial with the dancing Hershey's Kisses. Put on Home Alone. We'll see you at Star Wars. Oh, my God. You mean okay. Cecil Anniversary Day? <laughs> this please, Cecil. Yeah, so enjoy your time with your family. Tell them about us. Yeah. You know, people who aren't from L.A., you know, they're stupid cousins from Idaho like yeah.
0: this, too. Chewing on potatoes. Yeah off the ground.
1: Do you have stories you can tell us from the town that you're from? Oh, I got all my stories about french fries and how I fry them. <laughs> stupid people from Idaho. You're so stupid.
0: They've seen the ocean before. They don't even know what it is. <laughs> what
1: was that? Mashed potatoes? <laughs> God, they're idiots. Well, on that note, that's been two years, two years. of L.A. Meekly staying off of Maine since 2013. Boom. Boo. 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 boo! 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 I'm boo. here to haunt you! Oh, boo! I said boo! Well, didn't you know that the Cecil's evil powers came from Idaho? <laughs> Idiots. Oh, boy, that's <laughs> trouble.
0: Oh